0: Welcome to School of Movies (laughs) Willow It
1: was a different time It was a time of destiny
0: Side note, this takes me back We don't often do movies from the late 80s to the early to mid 90s And we should Because they all sounded like this, and they all had this one voiceover guy. His name was Don LaFontaine. He died in 2008. But for quite a while, he was trailers. What Honest Trailers are parodying with their trailer voice guy, John Bailey, is this era. A time when a child could tip the
1: balance between good and
2: evil with my powers with the strength of my great army can
3: you not find one little child
1: a time for an unlikely hero named willow i'm not gonna let anything happen to the baby
4: we gotta get that baby to somebody
1: i'm somebody a time of scoundrels what goes on here Uh uh-oh ...and a time of rebels. You are great! After them!
5: You're gonna get us killed!
3: You're a great warrior! And a swordsman! And you're ten times bigger than I am, stupid! Find a child. Find
1: a child. It was a time when courage could be found where you would least expect it. A time when unearthly powers raged and good men risked their lives. A time of great adventure. From the creator of Star Wars and the director
0: of Cocoon, Willow. This episode was commissioned by Joel Robinson, who originally wanted second-hand lions... But we decided that was not going to be enough material for a main event show. So what we did, because Joel is an incredibly generous contributor to School of Movies Patreon, is we did a little quick review on that. It is 30 minutes long and you can find it right now on the bonus podcast feed. It is a charming, lovely little movie and it will make you feel good if you can track it down. But from the short list of possible alternative suggestions... We picked Willow and we've been promising this one for years, but we never actually pushed the button on it. And I suspect Sharon and I are both aware that we adore this thing so much that we might not want to go digging around and find out that it's less special with the shine off you know, it's it's a, it's a childhood favourite, so we weren't expecting the kind of depths we would normally go into. Uh, you know how a lot of people don't want to revisit their favourites, even if it's just to watch them? You know, applying the School of Movies treatment is that to the power of ten. But it's here now, Joel made it happen, and we are opening up the doors on Willow. Now, a whole bunch of you, maybe even the majority, might not have grown up with this in the same way, or Maybe even you haven't even seen it. So we're going to talk you through this one scene by scene. Uh, It is one of the most agreeable and fun fantasies prior to Weta's Lord of the Rings. For my personal preferences, it is the best by quite a way pre-fellowship. I found it accessible. It was fun. It was magical, but human. It spoke my language. A lot of people in their thirties and forties will have a familiar favourite from the various attempts at fantasy of that era. So, um, grunt if this is one of yours. Dragon Slayer, Lady Hawk, Legend, Krull, <laughs> Krull, Hawk the Slayer, Beastmaster. Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. I feel like a lot of these would be a tough sell for modern audiences, especially children. And some of them were, of course, entirely unsuitable for kids. Conan the Barbarian springs to mind. John Borman's Excalibur feels, in retrospect, like Zack Snyder making Game of Thrones. But more than three decades after release, Willow has more of a Lucasfilm, industrial light and magic, special, awesomely outrageous 80s feel to it than all of the above for me. Its budget was between two and three times that of the above-listed films, and that money is put to serious work. In often stunning locations, beautifully photographed with a charming cast, a highly quotable script, gorgeous costumes, and an amazing score by James Horner. You really need to be like a never-ending story or a return to Oz to even come close For me, in terms of that kind of captivating level of effects that we're looking at here, you need a Princess Bride to beat that screenplay, a Labyrinth or Dark Crystal for that Lucasfilm magic plus Muppets and freaking David Bowie. Although it's important to reiterate that everything I've named so far is special to someone. It's their Willow. That fantasy film that just kept us going through the dark times when it seemed like nobody cared at all about the genre. All except Conan the Destroyer, which even Conan the Destroyer's mum hates. With us tonight, we have a packed party dedicated to delivering this very special baby to safety. The tough, conflicted princess and Hollywood actress, Maya Santandrea. Hello, everyone. The greatest swordsman who ever lived, he says. Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Greetings. A pair of tiny, mischievous brownies, Caro Nagisa. Hello. And Debbie Morse. (laughs) Hey. Of Sequentially Yours. (laughs) So Willow was conceived decades before the film came out by George Lucas, one presumes around the time he read J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, because what this is is a two-hour concentrated Middle-earth quest. George swapped out hobbits for Nelwins, which are basically hobbits with beards, although the original working title was Munchkins, so I don't know if he was going like, to go with L. Frank Baum's work, or I don't know. Just, it's a working title. Uh, the world of men from uh, uh, Tolkien's world is swapped out for the word Daikini. Uh, Galadriel is a queen of the fairies called Shilindria, and there are no elves or dwarves or orcs, though there are nine-inch brownies and trolls. Mm-hmm.
2: And fairies.
0: Yeah, of course, Queen of the Fairies. You know, I hate trolls. (laughs) And Lucas approached this fantasy land the same way that he did Star Wars, episodes four, and obviously that the team approached episode seven, but not episode one. We begin in the midst of conflict and we find out very little about the specifics of why everyone is fighting. There's an evil queen, that's probably reason enough. And we take the point of view of insignificant outsiders who don't matter in the long run but are given important tasks that force them out into the world on a Joseph Campbell quest. There's magic and mysticism but also enough humour to puncture the pretension bubble. The story takes a lot of shortcuts to prevent things from slowing down so that the whole journey can carry out over a quick three-act structure and you never really lose sight of the clear goal, though setbacks draw our heroes into a series of low points that have to be fought back out of.
2: Mm. It's funny that you mention Star Wars, actually, because the first note that I made was, uh, this does for fantasy what Star Wars does for checks Notes fantasy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't uh, like uh, Star Wars was basically fantasy in space and everybody loved it. This was fantasy in Fantasyland and everyone was like, meh. It cost $35 million, the same as Return of the Jedi had five years beforehand. Now, the third Star Wars film was always going to make at least $475 million. But what stumps me to this day is how Willow made only $110 million. This had many elements that should have brought it success and popularity. If you look at the highest grossing pictures at the time, the one at the top of the top ten list of 1988, even at this advanced stage of a decade of pioneering effects blockbusters, it was a simple road trip drama, Rain Man, which topped the charts. Tom Cruise was heading up the star system at the time, and notably his other drama, Cocktail, came in at number nine on that list. That might have felt like a bit of a burn to his Top Gun co-star, Val Kilmer, just two years after Maverick hit the big time. In fact, they started filming in 1986, so that he came fresh off of Top Gun Mm. and straight into Willow. Uh, Who Frame Roger Rabbit was second on this list of ten, with its amazing blend of animation and live action and Bob Zemeckis on top form. Then came comedies like Coming to America and Big and Crocodile Dundee 2. Die Hard was in there, changing the face and body of the action hero, and then there were the oddballs like The Naked Gun and Beetlejuice. But behind Tim Burton's weird ghost pervert picture at number 10, Willow made a spot somewhere in the low teens. We might be able to work out why tonight, but I don't think we have to. Cinema was in a transitionary state, and as the low returns for all of the above fantasies that I just mentioned, it indicates that this was a genre adults adults in particular did not want to embrace you know in fact most studios wouldn't back this production because they were convinced this was the case like adults aren't going to want to come see this We watched Starman today, by the way, and it's the entire flip side. The production of Starman, uh, it was uh, up against this Spielberg film called Night Skies. And the studios were like, oh, which one should we back? This one's more adult. So we're going to go with uh, Starman. And they were chucking the script around to loads of different... uh, Writers and they they rejected Night Skies because it was going to be a bit too kiddie. Starman ended up like costing thirty five million, making thirty five million, and uh, Night Skies went on to uh, oh, yeah, that was uh, E. T. the extraterrestrial, <laughs> highest grossing film of nineteen eighty two, uh, and uh, yeah, one executive was heard to say. We were wrong on that one.
2: (laughs) Another executive was heard to say,
0: shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. An episode on E.T. is coming very soon, folks, as our Spielberg season continues. But it almost feels like if Spielberg had directed this, it might have done better because Ron Howard was... He'd done Cocoon and a couple of other things, but he was basically transitioning from being Ron Howard the actor to Ron Howard the director.
2: I do feel like a big element of why the breaks were on this was because there were no... Other than Lucasfilm itself, there were no huge names attached to it. Mm. Kilmer was a co-star. Joanne Wally was virtually unheard of at this stage. Mm. Uh, Apart from... Maybe Jean Marsh was probably the the best known, and mm. that was for theatre.
5: A bunch of uh, British dramas, mm. you know, upstairs, downstairs. She was very briefly a Doctor Who companion. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and, and we
5: lost most of it, we lost most of that uh, storyline. Mm. We were also um, getting
6: a lot of would be Star Warses during this decade. Um, we talked before starting recording about uh, Terminator: Dark Fate, and like. You know, souring the well in certain ways, and I think that audiences were just kind of getting sick of Star Wars knockoffs because mm. there'd been just so many either in space or fantasy versions, and there'd just been like a bunch of kind of like really bad crap in the genre for the past five or six years. Yeah, and so I think they just kind of passed this up. It was like, yeah, we don't need this. Let's let's go for like more grounded stuff, like Rain Man, or more realistic action heroes like Die Hard. Mm.
3: People get get their fill of you know certain genres and you know you the the studios need to learn that hey that needs to take a rest for a while like Mm -hmm. people only want so many of so many fantasy movies or so many vampire movies or whatever it happens to be and let them you know let them let them rest for a bit.
0: I I think the um the perception that fantasy movies were kind of creaky and not for grown-ups was another thing like I don't want to go into this one it's for kids. Mm. So adults would stay away and um it, like, I don't know why kids couldn't just I suppose, I suppose like kids had to couldn't take themselves to the cinema. I
2: know I couldn't.
0: Yeah. At that yeah.
5: age. My parents just dropped me off at the cinema and left.
2: <laughs> Although, speaking of like, age.
5: To this day, I, they still haven't picked me up. Much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I had a slightly weird revelation today because um, Willow was something that I always remembered ha- as having seen when I was very small. And uh, and have having loved it from a very early age, and I realised today it didn't come out until 1988, so I must have been at
0: least ten. And also, did you see it directly on video as a rental? You know, you didn't see it in the cinema. I
2: must have seen it as a rental because I don't think it was. I don't think the first time I saw it was on TV. I had certainly read the the novelisation. Uh, before I saw the film I think
0: I think we rented it and then I finally uh, got it recorded off the telly at Christmas time mm-hmm. and just treasured that video I back in uh, the uh, late 80s early 90s I was just had a hoarder of uh, of all of these Amblin films videotaped off the uh, the TV and uh, if I was clever I'd be like right adverts coming up stop Yep.
5: Yeah. Oh, same here. My, my copy of Willow, um, it wasn't until I was well into my 20s that I realized that the High Aldwin says the bones told me nothing mm-hmm. because somebody had flipped the channel at oh. that point and I got something else for those couple of seconds.
0: Oh. So you got an advert for Hungry Joe or something. Beastly. Brilliant.
5: Yeah, I, mean, it, I, I can't even remember what it, it, it was. Uh, I remember there was some woman that looked like uh, she was in a cameo mm. type thing. And it also my copy of um so never-ending story cuts away from Artax dying to, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> 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 I, it really kind of kill, kills the uh, mood. Let me tell you. No way. Oh, that's
7: terrible. Yes.
0: Uh, yes. I saw a clip from The Shining with the old, the, the classic one with the old woman getting out of the bath uh, from the TV, and it's obviously it looks like the TV looked in the early '80s, mm. and so it's it's just horrible. But it's also she's covered in mist. They were misting up all the old person body, and uh, they, they cut very quickly to Jack Nicholson going and running away really quickly because uh, they're like, yep, she's old. Moving on kubrick went to all that trouble of framing it for tv and then tv mutilates it as a thank you
6: well i think that part of what you were talking about with kids is that 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 probably has something going because once kids were able to get a hold of this that's where it found its audience like it was on a it was a home video Mm. sort of resurgence because the you know it, it only did okay in theaters and then it became kind of this cult thing on video and then they put it on like warwick davis you know got to do like a whole bunch of retrospective and commentary type stuff when they finally did the dvd because they were mm-hmm. like oh wait there's a market for this it was just like five or ten years too late
0: yeah mm-hmm. i remember first seeing the uh, the video cassette the like the proper marketed video cassette uh, after watching the um the, this one i recorded off the telly so much you know how general kale dies at the end like Mad Mortigan stabs him about eighty-two times. It's like a Sam yeah. oh, And movie. Uh, and in the TV version, he just goes one, two, whoop, and then Kale falls and dies. But on the like the video version, it's like, whoa, this is really not sadistic, but it's just ridiculously protracted and graphic. In, in yeah. a good way, I, because when yeah, you were how a kid, many like, like are bits I of
5: stick through his stomach.
0: Yeah, <laughs> when you're a kid, like uh, extra bits of uh, extremity and violence in uh, um, in things that normally don't have that much violence in are noteworthy. At least, you know, back back in the day.
6: Okay. Yeah, this feels like a very PG-13 PG thirteen <laughs> yeah. PG. In terms of the American rating system, it's it's a very like it's a very hard PG rating.
0: There's quite a bit of stabbing that goes on. Lots of stabbing. Yeah.
3: Watching it this time, I'm like, there's some seriously dark stuff in here. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll... I'm like,
3: this was PG? Wow.
0: Well, it starts <laughs> with baby massacring.
3: It does, but then so does the Yeah. Portal.
0: Yeah, I was I, I was just thinking here like kidnapping. A Laura Denon That's... nearly become yeah. gets heralded at the uh, in the opening few minutes of this. Uh so the, the concept of this is uh, it's uh it's it's the land of question mark, um because they never actually say what the name of the world is. Willowtown and uh, in in in, in Willowtown <laughs> uh the the evil queen Bavmorda has heard a prophecy that uh, a baby born with a special mark on her arm uh, will be uh, uh will defeat her will destroy her and will end her reign of terror and uh, Bavmorda's like reign of terror that's a little on the nose let me go and find this baby and kill it and um it, it's it's very like it's a very biblical like, straight away out the gate, because, uh, Absolutely. this nurse, this old nursemaid takes Alora from uh, her mother, who's like, please save my baby, and then just journeys across the land, and then puts her in a basket of reeds, and then sends her down the river Moses style. It's, uh, it's a really great yeah. kind of classic opening, but like, the, the nursemaid gets eaten by pig dogs in the first few moments, and it's She's like totally this good. is not going to flinch uh, from upsetting the kids.
2: but one of the things I really like about this opening and it's it's one of the things that I love about the film as a whole is the the sheer female energy that comes out of this whole setup. So you've got oh yeah, the evil mm-hmm. queen mm-hmm. and her morally questionable captain of the guards daughter. You've got uh, the mother of the baby who has been identified as uh, the one that's going to destroy her, the baby being a girl herself, and that mother is not a shy and retiring type. Mm. There's no... I mean, obviously... She, she's,
0: she spits in the face of this wicked queen who's about totally to have her killed.
2: Basically, mm-hmm. once, once she's got her daughter to safety, her attitude seems to be unfair fucking dead anyway I might as well get some good licks in on the way out my daughter will finish you <laughs> absolutely and then you've got this this tough as nails midwife who basically scutters out of the castle like she's carrying a bucket basket of laundry, mm. relying on the fact that she is a little hunched over old nursemaid that no one's going to pay any attention to her. She goes right by these guards. She lives on
0: a like, diet entirely composed of black root. Yes,
2: absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would explain the hairy Put chest. hair on your chest. Um, <laughs> but, and the last um, thing she needs is a hairy chest. It, it just immediately, visually and audio wise, because you've got all of these female voices knocking around. There's all the a
0: chorus.
2: Tempers. Absolutely, Which is very feminine. It, it just sets the whole thing up as a world that feels matriarchal, mm. and uh, you know, special test, forget about it for this. There's so many interactions between women, and there are women with great power coming up further down the line as well. The fact that all of your um, well, we'll get to that later. No, no, right?
0: but you could carry on with the yeah. whole matriarchy.
2: Well, no, I was just going to say well, the fact that the, the three most significant people of power in this film are all women, above mm. Morda, Shilindria, and Finrazel.
3: Not only that, but the fact that because a baby is a central figure in this, it requires the men to be very maternal as you know as in terms of stereotypical gender roles of this baby. And some of the, you know, the adorable scenes of Warwick Davis carrying this baby and playing with her and, you know, just being sweet to her. And then the hilarious scenes of Val Kilmer holding her and speaking in a ridiculous manner. And it's so, yeah, it's it's all even more so female centric that way
2: too one of the things i really love as well that kind of underlines all of this is the fact that uh they keep cutting back to Alora's face mm. like there are so many moments in this where something happens and clearly they just got loads of little reaction shots from these babies mm. to, to yeah. cut mm-hmm. in whenever it was appropriate
0: I, and they got personality
2: absolutely they're all yeah. so spot on I, these little moments
0: Mm-hmm. I
7: was thinking that too like I hadn't I hadn't seen this movie in a very very long time so I I was very interested in jumping on this just to revisit it and see you know if it still held up and did I still feel the same way about it when I first saw it and one of the first things I thought was like you know I've worked with some babies in the past. This is one of the most expressive on-screen babies I think I've ever seen. Mm. And they do a a thing that's very typical whenever they're using small children or babies on set. They try to get a set of identical twins. Mm. That's a very Mm. common thing, and it is the case with Willow as well. So there are times where, like, okay, this one is not really responding very well. We're going to swap out their identical twin to try Mm. and... You know, get a little bit more expressiveness or get them to do the thing that we want to do in case the other one is sleeping or doesn't feel like crying right now. But I was actually very impressed with the baby acting in this, Mm -hmm. which is an odd thing to compliment. But a lot of times it's very like I I know how difficult it is to get any sort of reaction from a child. Like as soon as you want them to be quiet, they're going to start crying. The second you want them to cry, they're going to be fast asleep it just it never works out that way. So for them to get this many this wide range of reactions from these two babies is really impressive.
6: The other thing that really struck me going back to this is, you know, you mentioned Alex that it's it's very biblical and it is. It's, you know, it's it's Herod and Jesus and it's also Moses, but it's it's a girl. Mm. And the 80s were a very sort of regressive going back to a lot of sort of toxic masculinity and more, you know, more conservative things and you you had a lot of like cultural regression and a lot of the movies of the 80s really like reflect that whereas this it's it's all about these dynastic female powers and families struggling for either um like control through politics or through magic or both and you have the savior as a girl and then willow like it's it's not about you know, him becoming a, a swordsman, it's about him being the best dad who was ever a supporting dad so that he can so that he can do supportive, nurturing dad things like that's his uh-huh. superpowers is being like a, a nurturing, nice dad. And yeah, it's it's so it's so like um it's so pointed in the film that. He, his major interaction with Mad Mardigan is to, like, almost erase Mad Mardigan's toxic masculinity bro- broness.
5: Mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, something that I noticed this time around that I hadn't noticed previously, the uh, mark that's on Alora Dannon's arm is, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the symbol that's put on a mezuzah case um, in uh, Judaism. The mezuzah is a Basically, it's a piece of paper that you roll up and put in this case, and affix it to any doorway that has a that's a living space, and it's supposed to invite God in.
0: Right. Oh, so it's a holy grace. mark. Mm-hmm.
2: See, yes. I was thinking. Yeah. it's It's not identical, but it's similar to um, the uh, like a, a Celtic
5: harp. It. Yeah, I, I can see that yeah, too. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, Britishness check. His name is Warwick Davis. Warwick. For all the yes. Americans out there, do not pronounce Warwick. the W. That also goes for Warwickshire in England. It's not Warwickshire.
5: Yeah. <laughs> Unless you have a West Country accent. Yeah. It's Just in case he's
0: listening, hello, Warwick. I'm, I'm going to p- punt this one towards him, and I hope that he uh, uh, c- catches it. But, uh, yeah. The poster And I was talking about this on Twitter earlier today. Since you mentioned the whole female energy thing, you're right, there was a lot of, like, in the 80s, positioning of women in a very specific way, uh, and there was no poster that I could find with a really great picture of Saoirse doing what Saoirse does in the film. Mm. There's, like, one of the main ones, she's, like, cuddling up to Mad Martigan in a really thin nightdress, like, going, Oh! Man, Mardukah just like from behind, and he's in armor, and she is basically the Frank yeah, Frazetta so kind of, uh oh, like, like practically worshiping him. Only she's at least standing nearly level with him.
2: Is it like- possible <laughs> that one of the reasons this didn't do terribly well was because the marketers kind of looked at it and went, "We have spent the last half decade marketing this kind of shit to little boys. How in the name
7: of God are we supposed to sell them this?"
0: Maybe. Uh, well, the, uh, it another because the...
7: that even even that one poster that you shared, yeah, it's very very misleading. Like mm. the central character is not even really Madmartigan. It's it's not Val Kilmer's character, and he's front and center because mm. he was the big star.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. but I I really hope that people weren't like, oh, I'm not going to go see that one. That stars a short person. Because oh
2: god, no. <laughs> no good good I mean, luck
0: I mean, with I mean, Lord I mean, of the, I mean, the Rings at some point.
2: Well, indeed, but just in the sense that that like like you say Brendan the, the whole um, we've the best option we have for selling toys at this stage is to make sure that boys entertainment and girls entertainment is as segregated as possible mm. the 80s sucked <laughs> for that
0: the other poster no. with uh, Sorcha in it she's cradling the baby in a kind of well, you guys you yeah. men carry on ahead do your adventuring I'll be back here minding the baby that is not at all what she does the whole yeah, way through the movie oh
2: she's got that no interest in that child from start yeah. to finish <laughs>
0: At yeah. uh, finish, she's got uh, quite a bit of interest well, at the very, a very bit, end. But very like, end. Not
7: until, yeah. yeah, not until the very, very yeah. end, though. Yeah.
0: Like, it almost feels like you've got this warrior maiden and you don't want to put that on the poster?
7: Also, this is
2: skipping to the end a little bit, so feel free to snip this and move it to the end of the podcast if you want to. No, just but go. But thinking about it, at the very end, yes, she's holding the baby, but considering that Mad Martigan has been so close to Alora throughout the whole thing, my guess is he wanted to keep the baby, so she's going to be busy doing Queen stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm
0: one of the things you get to hear uh, and we've already mentioned it a couple of times James Horner's score and this is one of my favourites oh. of his uh, oh, yeah. uh, pieces when I
5: think of adventure I think of three scores mm-hmm. this Back to the Future and The Last Starfighter oh nice <laughs> <laughs> those, those are the three scores that I think of when I think of adventure and apparently I'm not the only one considering they kept mm. using this score for other people's trailers for years after, into the 90s before they got their own score worked out uh,
0: including
5: Braveheart mm. Which was also James Horner's score Yes
0: There's a couple of, uh, I want to say motifs, a couple of melodies that specifically Seem to key up to each character They are not labelled as such on the very sparse Soundtrack But that I feel, yeah. I feel like that's the, the Al- Yeah, the Allura Denham theme um, Along with the I think that's anything to do with the prophecy now Willow's theme starts off but throughout my life I'm like that bit isn't Willow's theme. Willow's is. Yeah. That's, it. that's the next part of Willow's theme. Every time that adventure theme plays, that's Mad Mardigan. It even plays what at the be- uh, beginning when he first gets uh, Laura Denon and goes, If I only had a little girl. And it just plays a little flute version of. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> He's my. I oh, someone
2: important in my life. A daughter, perhaps. I might have a reason to go on living. Oh, the dialogue in this is amazing.
0: So James Horner is now sadly no longer with us, but this is always in my rotation of uh, uh, fantasy soundtracks to listen to. It's it's not a Lord of the Rings, but it definitely paved the way. Mm
6: Uh-huh. Well, is this the originator of the da-da-da-da thing that he used for literally the entire rest of his
0: composing you career? you mean the bit time? in Avatar, that or, or, like, any
6: time there's a, a bad thing is happening, you know, it's always the da-da-da-da, it's da-da-da. in Mask da-da-da. of Sorrow, it's in... It, it's, it, it's somewhere in every single, like, it's his favorite little... And I, I don't know if it's, like, something he got from Wagner or some other classical piece of music that he's kind of
5: referencing, but mm. it's... It's very much the oh no, Nockmar shit's happening.
0: Yeah. Somebody, I think wh-
5: Sonata number three he took uh, the Mad Mar- the Willow theme, but that's really the Mad Martigan
0: theme. Mm. I know that
5: he got that one. I don't know about the da-da-da-da.
0: He wouldn't uh, they, it goes overdrive it near nearer the end when General Kale's really winning, it goes da 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 What I'm playing you here is a sad moment from Avatar. Which totally has that da. Also in The Mask of Zara. Like, he's not unknown to take bits of like uh, classical music and just sort of work them into his scores. That uh, the ballet piece from 2001 is also at the beginning of Aliens. Mm. Yeah. Okay. There's another couple of technical people to uh, give a wink and a nod to. Uh, Adrian Biddle, uh, who, speaking of aliens, was the uh, DP on that, uh, brought in, if you remember, after the original DP lit the Queen's lair so brightly you could see every nook and crevice. And uh, James Cameron was, Get the
1: fuck off my set!
0: Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, Adrian Biddle came along and made everything look great And uh, very notably, we've also uh, talked about his um, compositions in The Mummy, which he did
2: And The Princess yes, Bride
0: And The Princess Bride, which has got to be coming soon, surely It is, and don't call me Shirley <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I'm starting to get a real warmth for certain uh, uh, DPs Whenever I see uh, Dean Cundey, I'm like, yes! Halloween and Back to the Future! And Uh uh, as I get older, I'm appreciating really, you know, beautiful, grain-retaining Blu-rays that look very cinematic. And so when, uh, you know, certain cinematographers keep popping back up again, uh, I'm like, ah, well, this will explain why it looks so great. Um, And also there's Phil Tippett. Phil, all you had to do was control the trolls, Phil, and you got trolls in the goddamn kitchen. kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, some absolutely fantastic uh, um, uh, animatronic and uh, creature work, including uh, Dennis Murin as well, who's that uh, guy who worked in Empire Strikes Back and with that sort of mane of silver hair and, and huge glasses. He's becoming an owl. And, um, <laughs> yeah, just just some real, like, Lucasfilm veterans, people who had already made masterpieces were just coming back to just sort of lend their uh, talents here. And it's, like I said, it, this costs so much more than any other fantasy. So it's almost like, why didn't people turn up? Because when, when money gets spent on a modern day blockbuster, that's the story. Oh, this production, all this money got spent. And everyone just turns up to see where that money went. You know? Yeah.
5: One technical person I'd like to mention here that you haven't yet mm-hmm. is uh, conceptual art Mobius. Jean oh, Girard. seriously? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I didn't notice it until literally last night, and I've seen this movie countless times. Wow. But now that I'm looking, I'm like, I'm thinking of Bad um, uh ritual room specifically that uh, the walking thingamabob. Oh with yeah, the, yeah. That that is so Mobius. Now that I'm thinking about it, or you know, just little bits here and there that yeah, I can definitely see his mm. influence all over this damn movie. And um, we meet a definitely
7: couple- see I think even especially just watching it this time, like Lucas's influence is all over this oh, film. Yeah, like yeah. down to really little things like just going back to the music for a second. There were times where I was thinking the Ewoks theme. Mm-hmm. Like and you know, this is this is post Return of the Jedi, but there are little bits of music that sound very reminiscent of mm. the Ewoks, especially any of the Endor scenes from Return of the Jedi. And one thing that kept coming up that I was like, oh, my God, George, what what is it with you and the wipes? Oh my mm. god! There, <laughs> are so, there are so many wipes, and I was like, "Oh my god, that is just that's just George, that's mm. just uh, George Lucas, a hundred percent." And it was just so funny to me. Every time I saw them, I I wrote in my notes, "Oh my god, the wipes! Oh my god, there are so many!" And it was just hilarious to me. Something I never would have noticed
0: before. This was an old transitionary way of uh, uh, moving things on in the serials that he used to watch. But now, if any filmmaker or editor uses a wipe, they're doing they're Lucas now.
2: Lucas, they're doing. Yeah. Lucas, and absolutely. You're absolutely right about the little musical riffs as well. The um, the music that the band plays at the village fair <laughs> is it, it kind of makes the whole village look like an extended version of the Ewoks, except mm. with clothes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. there
0: were there were over 200 short actors in this film, specifically in the Nelwyn Village. Oh, yeah, there's so going to
7: be a lot of overlap. Yeah. with the ones who yeah. were in Basically, We
0: general. were seeing Ewoks out of the bear costumes. Mm. Indeed. And in into Which sort of medieval girl. because
7: I mean if you if you think about it, like how many acting opportunities were there really yeah. at this time point for yeah. little people like I just kept thinking that like what a what an interesting like prog- oddly like progressive mm. way to cast your movie to have all of these roles for very powerful women characters, but also a ton a huge cast of little people yeah. and and how many times would they have the opportunity to show their faces like this and not be. In a bear costume or a a double for a child or something like that, you know, Mm. where you could actually see Mm. their acting and see their performance. Mm.
2: And I was watching some of them um, when when they do the village scenes. Some of the, even the, like the
7: extras performances Mm. here, they're so great. They're fantastic. They're Uh wonderful. Yeah. And there's uh, so much character in all of these people. It's it's amazing.
5: Warwick Davis's future wife and father-in-law were among the extras in oh, the Noah nice. village.
0: Nice. Ron Howard mentioned uh, that uh, I think it, it was in uh, one of the uh, behind-the-scenes things. There's a scant little uh, background stuff on this, and I'd really like for there to be just at least a commentary. I'm sure Warwick Davis would love to. He mentioned that, first off, a lot of the short uh, actors are not actually short actors by trade. They have had jobs, mm-hmm. and so they and some of them just didn't have answer phones. So he was just, like, phoning all of these people. Well, not him, but the cast <laughs> (laughs) Uh, agents were just sort of phoning all of these people that they knew to have uh, the the right uh, stature for this particular role, but they were out at the supermarket or wherever else, the car show, or wherever else they were specifically working. Um, And and they didn't have uh, what Warwick Davis plays in the uh, sitcom Life's Too Short, him playing their agent and, and sort of corralling them all. In this show, Warwick plays a heightened arsehole version of himself with more than a pinch of David Brent. And he does have fantastic timing. We want to talk to you. Ah, um, have you made an appointment? Because uh, I've got a lot of meetings this afternoon, haven't I?
3: No, you haven't.
5: Are you sure? Just check again.
3: No, definitely not. You've got nothing. Nothing's going on. Phone hasn't rang for weeks.
5: Thanks for your help.
0: Seems like I can squeeze you in. We saw Anthony on the news I night. We thought he made some interesting points. Yeah, I made some interesting points as well, but they cut me out. We're worried that there's a conflict of interest here, Warwick. When the phone rings, we don't know if you're representing us or just taking the best roles for yourself.
7: He's not. The phone never rings.
0: Yes, it does.
5: And I always talk you guys up. Yeah, but if a producer calls up and says, I want to book Warwick Davies, I can't go, oh, no, you don't want him, you want some nobody you've never heard of, can I?
0: I'm sure you're not putting out a press release. Definitely not. Not putting out press releases. Well, shouldn't you be to publicise us? Well, I've got the website. Yeah, but that's a website for you. It should be a Dwarves for Hire website with our CBs on there and our showreels. Who's paying for this? You should be paying for it. We want to show people we can play Fellow or Hamlet or any other role a recognised person can play. Like Anthony said on the news, height shouldn't be an issue. It should simply come down to, can they act?
5: They come to me because I'm sort of their guardian angel. I care for them, I protect them, I nurture them. If they want to be taken seriously, then it's my duty to help. I'll make them a showreel. I just hope I can keep the cost down, cos it
0: is a total waste of money, and I don't mind giving them false hope, but not at my expense. <sighs> okay, action. While filming the Nelwyn scenes with a cast entirely composed of short actors... Ron Howard mentioned that when all of them were together... And he was just sort of among them. He felt like this was like he was kind of the outsider and just everything was kind of just moving along because that they were in a village that was entirely scaled to, you know, considerably shorter. And so he felt this rather than othering them, he felt like, mm. like the. This
2: is their space. Yeah,
0: this is their space, and he was just I'm kind of like bringing the cameras in, yeah. which yeah. was uh, that's kind of a rare thing, I would imagine. Mm.
2: But I just, well. I think the, uh, I mean, some of the the ones that I think need name checking are uh, Billy Barty mm-hmm. who played the High Old win grildor from a, of,
0: uh, Master of the Universe,
2: of the Universe. Uh, Phil Fonda. The child is special. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Phil Fonda. Uh, Phil
2: Fonda Caro who played uh, who plays the, um, the the best warrior in the village. Von he we've then, already
0: commended his acting in Troll absolutely. in our original he Troll was, and Troll that's, that's exactly what I was that. thinking <laughs> of such
2: a good performance I actually wished Von Carr had more to do in this it's yeah. quite a small role but he is so good
5: I feel like Ron Howard and uh, George Lucas were looking for things to give him to do because mm. mm. yeah. he, yes he has a small role but he has a larger role than that role really Called for, mm.
2: and I absolutely adore Kaya Willow's wife. Yes, yes,
5: oh yes, she,
2: she is fantastic. fantastic. And again, going back to that whole thing about the 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 female energy in this, and the the women being the ones making the decisions.
0: Julie Peters, this Julie is
2: Julie Peters. yeah. she is the the impetus in that family. Ultimately, she's the one who makes the decision that they're going to pick up uh, Alora from the the river. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, all right. She's not the one who goes. I will not be ignored. <laughs>
7: (laughs) Indeed. Um, Narrator, he was being ignored.
0: (laughs) He started that the whole time.
3: This way. Are you sure you know where you're going? Of course. With us as your guides, no harm will befall you.
0: Harm did befall them, and Willow was correct to be concerned. Meanwhile, Mad Mordigan was attempting a disguise in order to escape the Daikini village. However, what he assumed was the clothing of an old nursemaid turned out to be the show costume belonging to their most recent beauty queen. Someone Lug had been carrying a torch for for several days. I need to get back to directing this thing.
2: But she's the one who sells what Willow is walking away from. Because the the connection between the two of them is so sweet and so strong. And in such contrast with the grief that he gets from the rest of the village. Especially... Burgle cut. Especially Burgle Cut, yeah. That you just, you can feel what he's risking by taking this quest up and, and what he's putting on the line for this child. And it really puts that emphasis mm. in the story. It's great.
5: I was saying Kaya also very much is Willow's self-confidence manifest. Yeah. Um, she is the one who is always pushing him and keeping him going. So much so that when it comes to eventually the attack, the assault on Nakmar, he's sitting there uh, touching the braid that she gave him. Mm. And that scene always brings me to tears. It's just such because... A fish
4: yeah. That's
5: where he... And then his next line is courage willow mm. that's where he's getting his uh, his courage from his self-confidence and uh, considering that the whole movie is about him kind of embodying that confidence mm. yeah. it, it's it's she's a, a vital part of that mm.
2: and that's especially appropriate given that what he's dealing with there is trolls who will skin you alive and take your face off
5: uh. <laughs> yes <laughs> um, yeah and willow is three things in this order father farmer sorcerer Mm-hmm. And father father slash husband. Yeah. And, and so the and, sorcerer and what has been
2: put him. on hold for a long time.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Their chemistry is really impressive when you remember that Warwick Davis was 17 when he made this movie. So yeah. he's basically acting across someone who's almost twice his age mm-hmm. and the I mean he, he was basically picked out once George saw him for Return of the Jedi and I was like, Well, I need some stuff for that kid to do, because yeah. that kid's awesome. But I didn't even know until like decades because I watched this movie when I was a kid, like a lot of other kids do. It was just like, oh, yeah, no, he's just he's their dad and doing dad things. It's like, wait a minute, you know, having to reprocess this once I came back to it as an adult. This is a 17 year old kid Mm. who's been in a few other movies, but he's having to carry an entire film in a genre where short actors basically don't ever get to be stars And he's having to do things where he's acting, you know, 10 to 15 years older than he really is. Like, I don't think Wark Davis gets nearly enough credit, even among people who kind of recognize his talents. Because the dude has some chops.
7: Mm -hmm. I did not realize he was that young. That's crazy. Like, it's 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 crazy to think about. Yeah, like, that's how accomplished must he have been as an actor, even at that point, to be able to pull off something like that, where he does act much older than he than he really was at that time but I, I had no mm. idea i never would have thought he was that young
6: i love it he's such a cranky old dad he's
7: like no he we're not We're not going to adopt <laughs> him so, he's it. so
5: he's so put upon like don't you fall in love with her mm. don't you fall in love with her don't yeah. do it he was, he was one of those kids like um uh, fred savage who always as a kid played an adult basically mm. yeah and a kid's body
0: had an old soul sort of feel to them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But so much of the movie's just got resting upon him. Like if this guy comes off as irritating, your movie falls apart. Like if yeah, if he's a sad like it. sack, it doesn't work. If he's just generally kind of boring, it doesn't work. Mm. So that that he's just spicy enough to be like uh, like oh like he's got a lot of samwise gamgee in him mm. but he's also been Definitely. given the tasks of frodo and there's a little bit of luke skywalker in there there's there's enough of a mix of different archetypes of characters we've seen elsewhere to propel him forward and then externalize some of that in in, in his companions like uh, mad Mardigan and the brownies mm. um so he's Like, he's all four hobbits on on their own to begin with, to the point where (laughs) when he and his friends are all out, like, trying to deliver the baby, and then the other Nelwins go home, and it's just him and his best friend, Migosh, and then they deliver the baby to Mad Mardigan, and then uh, we'll come back to the actual Crossroads bit in a second, but... This is just like how great Warwick Davis is. They wake up the next morning and, and, uh, Frodo, Frodo, and Willow's like, I'm just gonna be hitting the road. Uh, you need, you need, probably need to go home and just, you know, uh, uh, you, you'll be okay, uh, Gosh, And Migosh is like, home. Oh, uh, you're gonna be okay? And like, Migosh is like, yep, this is fine. I'm up out this bitch. Peace. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> dude, the, like, uh, this uh, this is like after they've met Shalindria isn't it?
2: This is after the the, um, the brownies have brought yeah. the baby back. They, uh, yeah.
0: So Willow's back had back the back baby back. given back to him. Yeah. Told the entire world depends on him getting this done, and Migosh is like, is that the time? And he is just gone. <laughs> and like, basically, he's Willow's Sam, but like Willow has to be his own Sam because Migosh is like just out of here, <laughs> straight away that's, yeah, that's kind hard. of like they, they make that scene really quick because you need to, that someone cares about him like Migosh. but they can't just kill Migosh. but at the same time they can't have them have Migosh want to stay with Willow and Willow sneak away it's just like you go take care of yourself bye
2: mm. the isolation is important the fact that Willow is it, it, one of the fundamental elements of how his character is introduced is his lack of confidence in himself mm. and that he's putting that lack of confidence aside because there is a baby to save mm. is fundamental to what gets him out on this quest in the first place. Mm. So I think the the uh, the wanting um, sending Migos home. I mean, ultimately he's he's kind of trying to. Uh, not pass on the responsibility necessarily, but limit his responsibility at every available opportunity. Yeah, we'll Frodo
0: tried the- to do that as well.
2: Exactly. We will take <laughs> the baby as far as the crossroads. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, so we'll take the baby as far as the inn. Okay, well, that didn't work. So let's take the baby as far as the lake. And then the Phineasel can take over. Oh, no, that's not going to work either. So it's, it's
0: Again, Frodo did that as well. We'll just get the ring to Rivendell. Yeah. yeah. But the point is that Frodo had friends who would not give up on him. And yes. Migos was not one of those dudes. No. <laughs> no. Sorry me, gosh. Yeah but uh, like, it, it's fine because it, it paves the way for some really great other characters but uh, it, like, yeah this is uh, that requires thus Willow to be all four hobbits at once
2: indeed also I would say that to a degree Migos is not the most competent now in the business mm. and uh, if Willow has a baby to look after he really doesn't want to have to be taking care of Migos as well
0: yeah. so just to help people who haven't seen the film yet uh, uh, through to where we are uh, the the, um, the Moses basket washes up uh, the um, the shy of the uh, Nelwins <laughs> the Nelwyn village, the <laughs> Nelwyn village, uh, and uh, uh, Willow's kids are like, we, we got to keep that baby. And then this uh, a festival of uh, d- um, Nelwins takes mm-hmm. place, and Willow's doing his crap magic tricks, uh, including one like the, the bit where he like puts the flaming arrow through that arm um, thing I still can't work out how I was
2: going to say um, Warwick Davis cool. did those tricks for real yeah. he was actually um, a little bit trained in sleight of hand magic yeah. so the, the rings trick yeah. and the, the thing with the log he yeah. does that actually
0: and there's a very important disappearing pig trick. Remember that for later. But uh, it's it's in amongst everything else, so you kind of forget about it, especially because Willow gets embarrassed by the pig reappearing and uh, kind of ruining his act, which you laugh at. So they, they kind of hid a key thing in, in a joke there. So that's... Uh, which, ne- I,
5: I want to take two seconds here and just point out that, quite frankly, his ditch was perfect. Like, the fact that the pig happened to show up hmm. is just, yeah is just the uh, risk of working with live animals well, but you know what nobody <laughs> saw that pig go under that table yeah. at all. until it Absolutely, moved yeah. yes indeed <laughs> yeah I totally predicted the pig at that point
0: you can see it a mile off matey don't you put one over on me no no way piggy wiggy <laughs> don't know if you do the last line but it could you know piggy wiggy 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 here's another her.
7: Just
5: work on his
7: prestige. Here's another thing that I really like about this whole festival. And again, going against kind of traditional fantasy tropes, I think a lot of times you don't really see this in, especially in something like Lord of the Rings or even when I was watching it, I was thinking of Dragon Age. Dwarves as a race rarely are able to use magic. Mm. And here, it's almost central to their whole culture, is being a sorcerer and being the sorcerer's apprentice and learning how to do your magic really well and being very adept at it. Like, that's something that you don't see in fantasy very well. The dwarves are almost always magic averse like they can't even have anything to do with it they just they're just not adept at doing it at all
2: mm. but there is an allusion to the fact that uh the nelwyn are basically a blend of tolkien-esque dwarves and hobbits or i think they, do they call them halflings in um yes. dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. yeah um but they uh, there's a comment that Burglecut makes when Willow's trying to plough his field without interruption and he says that he's gonna have his land and Willow will end up working, yeah, end up mines, working in the mines. Which is Wines. so so clearly they are miners too, but they don't like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can but understand it, mining's like a really rough anyway, job.
2: It's very dangerous, yeah. yes.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, at this ceremony, uh, Willow uh, tries to uh, be the uh, new apprentice for the High Oldwin, who's like uh, a rare wizard. Cause, so there is some magic amongst the Nelwyns.
2: Yeah, I feel like the High Oldwin is, is sort of the... I mean, Burgilker is the mayor or something like that. So I feel like he's their secular leader and the High Oldwins like their shaman. Chief type.
0: Chirper and Logre. Yeah, yeah.
2: exactly. Okay.
0: Uh, and... Uh, there's a, like This is a really significant little moment. We actually have an autograph framed on the wall that was last year's birthday present for Sharon on her 40th? 40th, yeah. yeah. Uh, that uh, I got Warwick Davis to sign, and it's, The power to control the universe is in which finger? And the point is, Willow is supposed Mm. to not pick one of the High Old Wind's wizard fingers, but one of his own fingers.
7: But his own.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, which is just a really way of saying, like, you are the person who can control, you know, your own destiny in this Mm. scenario. And that's ultimately what Willow needs to learn. That is his arc he set out. And it's very simple. He needs to trust his own instincts and trust who he is. And also... Like, this is a, an important arbiter for change mm. there.
2: Yeah. And one of the things I really love about the High Old one as well, he's he is in the group of my favourite representations of the magic old wise person mm. Mm. in any film ever, although there are so many in this movie, frankly.
0: He's quite Yodorish. Uh-huh.
2: He is indeed. But the, the, the little things that he throws in there, like the whole magic is the bloodstream of the universe bit, um, but he is incredibly honest about the uh the headological nature of his magic yep. mm. the fact that there are moments here when his magic doesn't actually help mm. but he will use his understanding and knowledge of how people think in order to nudge them into doing the things that he wants them to do which is awesome i love that
5: Uh, this expedition needs a leader
2: (laughs) according to the bones that leader is you absolutely (laughs) and that again i mean i'm going by pratchett rules here but that's witch magic not wizard Mm. magic uh-huh.
0: Well, it, it does, yeah. he doesn't just score Burglecutt. He scores Burglecutt and Vunkard. And because
2: Burglecutt's going to bring Vunkard. They
0: suggested Vunkard yeah, to begin with. And, <laughs> and, yeah, Burglecutt yeah. wants Vunkard as his own personal bodyguard, which Absolutely. thus gets you mm-hmm. the best warrior. He
2: sucks.
0: Uh, and also, like, a really important part of uh, Willow's journey is that Burgle Cut is a friggin' albatross around his neck, and he needs to spend some time away from this total Johnny bring down mm, that absolutely. is Burgle Cut.
2: He's critical, he's threatening, he's entitled, and he gets gross things in his mouth all the time, and well deserved. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
0: yeah. We <all> like <laughs> he's a him. snappy
5: dresser, though. i mean, give credit <laughs> for that. I like his tunics. I like the sort of, it's ribbon, but it looks like
0: chain. It's nice. Mark Northover, by the way, had an absolutely thankless task playing Burgle Cuts. He really
2: did. Yeah. Um, There's another little character note for Willow in this part as well. When the dogs come back into the village and start turning over the cribs... um, his daughter gets stuck in the middle of it all, Mm -hmm. Mims, and while everybody is racing away from the fray, Willow goes into it in order to grab Mims and get her out of there, which again kind of underlines this idea that we know he's nervous, we know he's not the bravest person in the world, but when someone he cares about, especially somebody who is defenceless, needs his help, all of that goes out the window and Mm -hmm. he will run towards danger rather than away
3: from it. Which is which is such an excellent contrast because the thing that was kind of blowing my mind, because this is the second time I've seen this movie. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> but the, the thing that was kind of blowing my mind is the fact that Willow's first reaction when they see the ba- the Daikini baby is, I'll push it down the river. Mm. I'm like, "Jeez, Willow, that's <laughs>
2: well she doesn't seem to be under any direct threat at that point if we just give her a little bit of a nudge we can pretend we never saw her in the first (laughs) place
0: Willow is too frightened of anything from the outside world even though he kind of uh, is then forced out into it again if you
2: become a sorcerer's apprentice what do you think's going to happen? you're going to encounter the unknown on a regular basis
0: well he's conflicted he wants two different things but he doesn't want uh, uh, trouble is, is one of the important things but him not wanting trouble is a really great way of putting him up against characters who represent quite a bit of trouble. Yes. Yeah. So uh, they get, by the way, the uh, the consult the bones thing, uh, which is like these soothsaying bones that the uh, High Oldwin uses and goes, the bones tell me nothing. Consult the bones is like in our vocabulary whenever we go to Google or something.
1: Consult the bones.
0: <laughs> Google tells me nothing.
4: nothing.
0: Okay, so... They go, uh, a, a small <laughs> party of Nelwins goes out just to get rid of this baby, uh, and uh, they go to the crossroads and they meet, in a crow's cage, a uh, character named Mad Mardigan, played by uh, Val Kilmer, who starts off really scary and abrasive, mm. and his you know, hyper-aggression doesn't get him out of the cage or get him any help.
5: It doesn't, No.
0: No. I don't imagine that he was really thinking very
5: clearly if his thought was take a hostage and then throw the hostage away so that it can come back for to you with water. <laughs> like yes. there's a bunch of other people there. take the hostage
0: and demand somebody else bring the water. yeah
2: there are so many moments
0: is not a stuff. great. Tactician, no, even I if he's a good swordsman.
2: Yeah, his his uh, approaches to things always seem to be: if I'm really, really sarcastic at this point, I'll get what I want. Really? What if you just
0: <laughs> call him a really nasty thing? Then Absolutely. it'll happen. If
2: I'm really horrible to people, I'll I'll get my desires. Yeah. You didn't think that through, did you?
0: Now I attribute the Han Solo effect to uh, um, uh, Val Kilmer here, insofar as if you had. Uh, Star Wars episode for A New Hope without Han Solo, without that, and at least also without uh, Princess Leia's, you know, later attitude once she gets out of her cell of being very abrasive and sort of brushing things off and being quite sarcastic and snappy as well. So i want to get this big walking carpet out of my way. Um, Unless you had someone like that in Star Wars, the whole thing comes off as too po-faced. And he's not... The Han Solo character here. I put it out to show, and he doesn't even have a Chewie. His Chewie hates him.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 he t- his Chewy went off to do something more important because yeah. he was sick of hanging around with this Johnny Bringdown.
0: Which shows that, like, you know, you, you get in a very short order. This very simple, straightforward character is a scumbag. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he's also charming and funny. And charming, funny scumbags are gold on screen. They
2: really are. And again, I, I said about the dialogue in this is amazing. So much of this is down to what they give Val Kilmer. But it's not just the the one-liners that he has um, the the interaction that he has with the other characters particularly eric are yeah. what gives you the the um multidimensionality of this character because what he presents and this is part of why I adore him and part of what I find so fascinating about him what he presents is a very superficial version of the greatest swordsman who ever lived and it's all the little asides with Eric that tell you what his backstory is and give you these little hints about how the hell he ended up in that cage in the first place, what he's been through that got him to that point and that makes his character arc feel a lot deeper and a lot broader than you actually than what you see on the screen. What you see on the screen is not huge, but because you get these hints at the depth that's behind it, it feels a lot bigger mm. than it is.
5: Oh, yeah. This is one of my favourite movie scenes of all time mm-hmm. because of that. And, um, I, I wrote an essay on it on my old blog, and I think I sent it to you years ago before I had even been on School of Movies even once. Oh, nice. Uh, when you were first
0: talking about doing this...
2: That's, that's how now. long we've been talking about doing well, this. Yeah.
7: You see
0: why sometimes <laughs> okay. it pays to just come along, pay us to just do it. Just stop talking about it and do it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, we'll now do. you
7: have no excuse. But Somebody's paying you to do it. Get yeah. it. Done.
5: Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I love about this is that one word gives us everything we know and it's the word remember. Mm-hmm. Eric says to Mad Mardigan, I still I still serve Galadorn. You serve nobody. Remember? And you can tell at that moment he is throwing Mad Martigan's words back at him. Mm-hmm. That years ago or whenever ago, Mad Mardigan said something snarky about you serve Galadorn, I serve nobody.
0: Remember. And
5: at that point I knew between that and the rest of the conversation, I knew his backstory. And I last night I actually looked it up to find out what, you know, his canon backstory is that they didn't put in the movie, but they were planning on it. Mm-hmm. And I was damn close.
0: Uh Uh-huh. What's the backstory?
5: Basically, Mad Mardigan was uh, sleeping with a visiting eastern princess. And when they got caught, you know, him being just a regular soldier, it was very bad. He got put in prison. He got the option to uh, fight for his honor, essentially. And instead, he deserted and basically told saw Eric on the way out and told him, fuck this, I'm not doing you know, this isn't worth it to me and then he went on to become a mercenary and Eric is a character, he can forgive screwing around with a woman he can forgive getting caught, he can forgive making a mistake, he cannot forgive disloyalty, that's the one thing about this character that is consistent, that he cannot forgive somebody who is not a
0: crusader like he is
3: He can't forgive cowardice, basically.
0: Yeah. To uh, set the scene, folks, uh, while they're standing beside the crow's cage for a whole night and a, a morning, um, a bunch of soldiers come by and they have re- still refused to let Mad Mardigan out. No one, None of the soldiers are interested in letting Mad Mardigan out. And one of the soldiers, who just happens to be Mad Mardigan's best friend of old, Eric, uh, stops and starts talking to them and then sees that Mad Mardigan is there in the crow's cage. And uh, they have a sort of a back and forth. And it just seems like this army is going off. They've already been hit really, really hard by Queen bevmorda's forces. This is this last contingent that are going to give everything they've got to try to take her down, mm. but it seems like they're all going off to die mm.
2: and this as well gives a little bit of a underpinning to what the movie as a whole thinks about this battle glory toxic obsession Mm. because the fact that mad martigan is kind of selling himself as the greatest swordsman who ever lived but when he talks about when they they can hear the the um the battalion coming and he's like oh it sounds about sounds like two or three hundred thought horses five or six wagons and about about a a thousand thousand fools. fools the cynicism in his voice is in direct conflict with what the greatest swordsman who ever lived Mm. should think about battle.
0: Yeah. If you're good at something, never do it for free. Um,
3: (laughs) He reminds me a lot of Rick from The Mummy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he also has, like, he's stuck in a cage at the beginning. I think we might even have said that when we covered The Mummy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think um, Bob, in his uh, Good Enough Movies piece on Willow as well, referred to Mad Martican as feeling uh, more like a burned-out rock star uh, than a, a sort of Han Solo pirate type. And I, that that feeling that he's he has, like Rick, he's been in battle, and that's why he doesn't want to go back into it.
6: Yeah, they wait a long time to, like, actually put a sword in his hands. And, of course, they they have the, I'm the greatest swordsman that ever lived, as your introduction to this kind of jackass. And mm. so you immediately dismiss him. And then he's kind of bumbling his way through the action sequences, sort of winning, but also requiring, like, two very small people and one slightly smaller person to save his bacon. And so the, by the time, like, it's like an hour and 15 minutes into the movie when they're up in the mountains and he finally gets a sword, it's like, oh wait, you are good. It's not just all bull crap. And then, you know, he got, he's got that perfect, like, twirl the sword slip because it's snowy, like, just <laughs> ultimate gif moment of like, this is Mad Mardigan in five frames.
2: Absolutely. Um, and he's he's they, like their strider, but a tongue-in-cheek strider.
6: Oh yeah, he's, he's very much like Boromir, Aragorn, and Han Solo all mashed together. Mm. Like, there's there's so many characters that like you were saying Alex is, is like okay you're just all four hobbits okay you're just this Star Wars person and that Star Wars person yeah. like Sorsha is Faramir plus Eowyn only she's got you know Darth Vader's redemption arc from Return of the Jedi so it's very I mean but it all it, it's all like very much works
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Mad Madigan what'd you do this time nothing you wouldn't have done in my place I always knew you'd end up in a crow's cage well at least I'm not down there herding sheep what are you doing this far north? The Nocturne army destroyed Galadorn. The castle? Badmurda's troops are crushing everything inside. Well, come on, let me out of here, Eric. Give me a sword. I'll win this war for you. Mad Martigan. I still serve Galadorn. You serve no one. Remember? Sit in your coffin and rot. Chow!
4: Wait, Eric! You need
1: me! <laughs> I'll be around long after you're dead. When I get out of here, I'm going to cut your head off and stick it on a pig pole.
0: But yeah, there's there's one thing that's more valuable to a a screenplay than a a, a charming scoundrel. It's a charming scoundrel that you get a little flash of goodness in them. And you kind of want them to follow it up, and then they revert to type again, and then it, they, they tease you a bit more. And it's 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 just like Jack Sparrow did that a couple of times in uh, you know before he went a bit crap. You know, th- th- there's hints throughout this of, of Mad Mardigan actually being a, a decent person, and, and by the end, it's actually it, they kind of almost shortchange him because he he ends up doing like being really unselfish and then never explores it verbally. Like, you know, it's it's all about his deeds and action. And if you remember at the very end of the movie, no one says anything at all. Like, Saoirse doesn't explain why she opposed her mother's cruelty. Man Mardigan doesn't say anything. And that, of course, was a product of its time and could never happen in a brand new Lucasfilm movie. What? Like, Willow gets told, thank you, here's a spellbook, bye. Mm.
2: It is very quick, the <laughs> ending. But in a way, that kind of underpins the whole point with this, because the, he doesn't get cookies. He, he does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And it's when he finally says, I serve the Nelwyn, it's so simple and so straightforward. And that, for me, is kind of the conclusion of his arc. Everything that he
3: does after that is just mm. clean up. I have to comment, and I I like the character of Sorsha, and um, I wanted to talk about her character, if you want me to put this later, no, I or I now, can say yeah. it now.
0: Sorsha is um, uh, the uh, flaming head daughter of Bav Morda, and there's a Sorry, just let me just explain this one other bit. There's a deleted bit where uh, it turns out that Saoirse's father, the king, was frozen in a castle somewhere by Morda. and she's been told as she grew up, your father was weak. And then she eventually finds her frozen father, and he like he gets thawed out at the end. So like that's him at the the, the finale ceremony. But um, the beardy guy. Yeah, it became kind of a choice between like you know my father and my mother, which ends up not being uh, what, what's all she's doing. It's, it's more just a case of, well, you, you go for it, Debbie.
3: Over the course of the movie, you know, basically because of Mad Mardigan, as she watches him and sees, you know, the fact that, yeah, he's a scoundrel, but yet he's, you know, he's opted to stick with and protect this, this little person and this baby. And, you know, clearly he's actually a good guy. And, you know, she kind of seems to take... And, you know, kind of get a sense of, okay, I, I like, you know, I like this. I want to be a better person or whatever. But I, I do have to comment, like, I, she is not very well written in the beginning. Because in the beginning, she is very much comes up, at least to me, as just a henchwoman. Wow. And there that she's just, and, and she's badass, and I like that. But I don't get a lot of, and, and nobody's giving her crap and all that kind of stuff. But until she starts to fall for mad Barnigan, I don't get a lot of personality from her.
2: That is that's fascinating well, my that's was total opposite to what i got i've I have loved this yeah. character for years, but for me, it's all she kind of i think she thins out a little bit towards the end. um, but for me, all of the the meat on her character is the um is the fact that she's following her mother so blindly that she's heard all of this stuff her whole life about the the prophecy and and this is bad and it's going to take your mother down and she's she's kind of it almost feels like she's trying to prove something and um and prove something whether to herself whether to her mother and and as a result of that she's had to kind of reject any semblance of affection or or can you know human companionship or any of that or at least that she's recognized she's not going to get any of that from her mother so it's that kind of all feeds into how she then reacts to mad martigan later on to me and that I, i'm it just is really really interesting how a personal perspective on a character can totally change how you interpret them yeah. I was going to
7: say almost the yeah. exact same thing, Sharon. Like, my impression towards the <laughs> beginning was, even though Mom, like, dunks on her relentlessly, <laughs> Sorsha is so, like, she's so determined and so desperate to please her mother and to do the right thing. She's, you know, she constantly gets told that she's messing up, that she's not good enough, and she, you know, she's getting dunked on all the time. And then suddenly, uh, later on, this this guy comes along. She doesn't really like very much. But for once, she's actually getting complimented. And he actually sees something in her that maybe she didn't see in herself. And, you know, uh, this is one person that actually has something nice to say to her, which is kind of sad. But it's kind of <laughs> sweet also. Like, oh, She's this, very I, unused
0: that... to that affection and, and that yeah, like very, soft words and any kind and, yeah. of uh, romance at no- all
7: or any or any kind of compliments anybody telling her that she's good that she's beautiful that she you know like that she's desired that somebody wants her like that's that was kind of the the takeaway that I got from it was that at the beginning she's so wrapped up in trying to please her mother and then finally someone comes along that says hey there's there's something more to you you have more you know there's more worth to you than just pleasing your mother and taking her place or or whatever that is or fulfilling her
5: demands mm. Yeah, you're somebody's moon. Their sun. Their moon. Their starlit sky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and to her credit, Joanne Wally uh, does manage to pack an incredible amount of strong ambivalence uh, into just looking at Mad Martigan from a distance. In that kind of oh, what is, what what is all this about? I'm not sure. These feelings inside. It's not just. In fact, it's is barely at all like sexy guy. It's more that he like what they're doing and protecting this baby and and protecting each other. Is alien to her, and she's kind of curious about that mm. because she's grown up with just strength and smashing things. Yes,
2: and she is very <laughs> she is very skilled and strong, and and there's all sorts of of as you say, Debbie, the the kind of the badass female about her, um, which I think is something that has been used in a kind of hammered flat way in in later years. But I think for me, with this being one of the earlier examples of that. It grabbed me in a way that that later ones maybe felt a little bit less um, less complex. But I think as well, there's mm-hmm. a, an element of um, the the uh, the feeling of of sincerity versus cynicism as a whole in how Saoirse behaves, in how Mad Martigan behaves, and even to a degree in how Eric behaves, because his uh, loyalty is all to do with who he's. Uh, dedicated himself to it's not necessarily a a genuine part of who he is um, but they are all influenced by the the purity of just being who you are that willow projects
6: that's one of the things that i always took away is that so much of sources transformation is not just because you know mad Mardigan you know does the, the the whole dust of broken heart thing but also because When she starts having those first initial like feelings of maybe she's going to turn, that's when Mad Mardigan and Willow are really clicking as a you know traveling companion slash surrogate family, and so she gets to see these two in a non toxic supportive relationship for like the first time that she's witnessed that possibly ever, and that's that like her getting to see Mad Mardigan swear his basically his fealty to to Willow in front of Eric, is like, that's like a big deal to her. She's like, oh wait, people people can do this to each other, not not because they're told to, but just because they want to? Huh. Like that's, you know, and, and like you said, you know, she, she does a lot of like, acting through those character choices, even though there's not a lot that the script always does to verbalize it to the audience.
3: Mm. And mind you, I, I am mainly talking about the script, because she did, her performance was great. Mm. And I think she did, she did a lot with very pretty thin material for a lot of the movie. Mm. Yeah. In terms so, yeah, of full lines, props to the actress. Yeah, yes. In,
2: in terms of lines, she does not get any of the zingers that Carrie Fisher got for um uh, Star Wars. Although I am led to believe that Carrie Fisher may have written many of her own zingers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like maybe her. that was the uh, that was the key element. But there is a lot of physicality in the way she behaves. There's a scene where um, they've they've captured her inverted commas, and uh, Mad Martigan's kind of holding her hostage and they fall off the horse and in order to get away from him, she elbows him in the chest, punches him in the throat, kicks him in the nuts and just runs.
0: <laughs> yeah, she John Wicks him, basically.
2: <laughs> it's a great scene. It's so good. She's very conflicted, of course, mm. but that's still a great nut shot.
0: And yeah, like uh, while Mad Martigan is... Like, the, like it's Val Kilmer is fucking beautiful in this film. Like, yes, he is yes. at it, the sexiest he will ever be in his career in this uh, uh, one passage. Uh, but they. Like, constantly making the butt of jokes. They are constantly taking away his dignity. They're like, the, the next time Willow meets him, he's dressed as a woman, and it's like, oh, a hilarious drag act. But, like, he's you know, dressed very, very funny. Badly as a yeah. woman. Yeah. And uh, the, he, he, he you know, he's, he's got like coconuts oh. down his bra. And, uh, like, he's very rarely dressed in cool clothes. Mm-hmm. And then when he is, it's like, ha ha. But then, like, when he falls off this like, snow sled thing and turns into, like, a giant cartoon snowball with, if you look, like, a tiny pair of feet sticking out of one end <laughs> and a head sticking out of the other about ten feet apart from each other. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, and yeah, that they're they're constantly taking away his, like, what boys would want to feel cool like. And as a weird retro consequence, he was the guy I most wanted to be after... Dr. Venkman originally. Mm. Well, the, <laughs> yeah. Which range... was a creep, and I shouldn't have wanted to be either of them, frankly.
2: The range of skills that he displays is actually really impressive because, yes, you've got the swordsmanship, um, and yes, we've established that he's shit at strategy, really not very good at getting along with people. Mm. But he's like, he's a. He's. Somehow his seduction techniques seem to work on. Several people Which
0: means yeah. he has it inside And he was doing those entirely from the heart at the yeah, time
2: absolutely But some of his best moments are when he's being a dad mm. When he sat there holding mm-hmm. Allura and, and playing with her and,
4: yeah. and yeah.
3: What are you doing? I found some blackroot She loves it Blackroot? I am the father of two children And you never ever give a baby blackroot Well my mother raised us on blackroot It's good for you a chair on your chest. Doesn't it stick? Her name is not Sticks. She's a Laura Dannon, the future empress of Terra's Lee. And the last thing she's got to want is a hairy chest. Did you see what
1: he
2: did? He stole our
1: black root. I'll get some more. Don't worry about it. Yeah,
4: I
2: love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I probably wouldn't recommend giving a baby licorice root to chew on.
5: Yeah. <laughs> that was vanilla. <laughs> ah,
0: but yeah, just like yeah. the quiet moments when he sat around with this baby, you could tell there's like a genuine affection, rather than just "I'm being told to hold this baby like this weird mutant yeah. sack of there's flowers." Yeah, no there's
2: stiffness. He's so mm. relaxed about it.
0: And anyone who's seen American Sniper can tell you, using dolls instead of real babies, it's ever so slightly lacking in human engagement.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> he must have had, you know, nieces and nephews or sibling, younger siblings, mm. or, you know, he's he's clearly helped raise a baby before yeah Yeah. although
2: he does kind of give it away because he does say um something about one of them says to him you don't know anything about babies right but i know a lot of women who do (laughs) so basically what he's admitting to there is seducing lots of mothers that's not better
5: (laughs) also he apparently has a lot of experience in snatching babies uh, he had yes. I have a lot of experience with this sort of thing. What?
0: <laughs> <laughs> why, why do
5: you have experience in stealing babies?
1: Uh, I miss Kyle and the bobbins.
6: We're running out of food.
1: Nobody's going to take care of that baby. You know why? Nobody cares. At me. You want to go back to your families. Oh, I want out of this cage. Let me take care of that baby. I'll look after her like she was my own. I believe you would, Willow. He doesn't know anything about babies. Right, but I know a lot of women who do. If I had somebody in my life, a little daughter perhaps... I might have a reason to go on living. You can't leave me in here to die.
0: Not when all I want to do is protect her. In the end, uh, Willow and Migosh let... Mad Mardigan out of his cage uh, they, they give him Laura, he r- uh, runs away with her you know, uh, claiming he's going to look after her some brownies nick it from him immediately while he's micturating and uh, they uh, also capture Migosh and Willow and they are given their marching orders by this Galadriel standard honestly it's like you didn't even try to make her not Galadriel at this point mm-hmm. she is a lady composed entirely of light
7: Yes, yeah. <laughs> there is that. And I she was saying even... the same thing. I was like, oh, my God, this is just Galadriel. What yeah. are we Absolutely. even doing here? But and I
0: didn't I know about Galadriel, really, till I was, like, nineteen, twenty. And,
7: and this is the thing as well. Bear
2: in mind, what informs us on Galadriel is Peter Jackson's presentation of her. Yeah. And I am willing to put serious money. I will bet my Willow signature mm-hmm. that... <laughs> Peter Jackson has seen this and really liked this yeah. portrayal, and well, took I mean, his cue from it. For I, the, I imagine
0: for he's Galadriel. probably worked with people who worked on it because it, a lot of it was in the middle section when they're in the mountains was filmed in New Zealand.
2: Indeed, but the like yeah. when she gets angry about what's been going on, um, that's very Galadriel as yeah. well. The yeah. um, and she even gives them the the. Um, Threat well, not threat, but the warning that if birth is not stopped, she will control the lives of your children, your village, everybody mm. that's the scouring of the shire that yeah. she's alluding to
0: and Migosh's uh, response to that is'm and uh, also, she doesn't lie. She says, "Take her uh, to Tirasleen, where a good queen, king and queen will take care of her." That actually does happen at the end. Like you know, she could see yeah. at least certain amounts of that uh, uh, happening. So she doesn't uh, uh, bend the truth in that. But when it turns out that the castle she sent them to has been cursed and uh, actually isn't um, uh, really all that defensible, or, or any kind of salvation, or uh, for uh, Elora, it is merely the place she needed to be taken so that she could you know end up exactly like basically the way it plays out is what uh, one, one imagines Shalindri is doctor strange at this point mm. and she's like there's <laughs> the one way. universe <laughs> where <laughs> yeah. uh, a uh, where we a lord and actually deals with Bav and when it happens like this mm. so i got yeah. to make sure that uh, uh, willow goes with this baby <clears throat> Uh, Well I would definitely
6: agree with you that this had an effect because if you just look at the things like the color palette, the Mm. production design, the way that it's a lot more grounded, the the grittiness of Lord of the Rings is very much reflected here. Um like you said with Shot News. There's this had to inform visually on on Peter Jackson's approach because it it didn't look a lot like, say, Conan the Barbarian or a lot of other fantasy that had come out during Mm. the during the decade it was it was a lot more I, I wouldn't say like grim and gritty, but it's it just feels a lot more lived in than something like Masters of the Universe or mm.
0: or, you know, the sword and the sorcerer.
3: Realistically gritty. Gritty like real yeah. life is gritty.
0: Yeah. Well, exactly but, but gritty in terms of like this is the countryside and we're going here. Masters of the universe in particular went, This is Eternia. What we're gonna to go to small town America, total cop out. <laughs>
2: And they couldn't and a lot even of make small town America period. realistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: A lot of movies from that period also. Um, it looked like they were filming in rock quarries primarily, and yeah. this doesn't do that. Yeah, uh, you know, there's one bit where it's clearly in a quarry term, yeah.
0: with with a with a matte painting behind it, but uh, it, like the actual it that that yeah. like design of the the castles and stuff around them really look impressive. Mm-hmm.
2: Could that yeah. have been the same quarry where hmm.
5: Gondor was built?
0: Well, like even Lord of the Rings did film some stuff in a quarry. It did. <laughs> so yeah,
5: but it didn't make it look like a quarry.
0: Exactly. Yeah, you, you got to do stuff to it. You can like, I was we were watching. I was watching Hitchhikers with uh, Lyra yesterday, and the the planet of the fly swatters that they go to, where whenever yeah. you think of something, they swat you in the face. It was like could be filmed very cheaply in a quarry, but then there's these enormous like giant buildings behind it. It's like, oh, okay, so you've got a quarry plus that. So that kind of makes it like look like a real place. It's, uh, I hate the word gritty because it felt that that's almost as bad as interesting because like what it really <laughs> describes is just something that could be real, but that suggests that anything that isn't gritty mm. isn't not real. real. Like yeah, yeah. is Groot not real? Mm. Is Groot gritty? I mean, he's got earth on him, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so they go to a very gritty place, Bree, uh, and there's, they're at the inn called The Prancing Pony, and there's a bunch of giant racist <laughs> daikinis. It's, it's pissing down with rain, and uh, rather than meeting uh, Strider, who's like, you have a stout-hearted little hobbit, but it will not save you. Yes, there's a reason I'm wearing a dress, and I'm talking like Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, know, they, they end up in literally the same place the hobbits uh, end up in. Only this place is... Even more uh, uh, oppressive and aggressive. And uh, like I say, uh, Mad Mardigan's wearing um, uh, uh, a disguise, effectively, so that he can sneak out after having um, been amorous with this woman. And then her husband becomes hilariously comically rapey. Yeah. 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 Like want to uh, breed? breed? It's only funny because I gotta give it's... him credit. I gotta give him a little bit of credit because that is
5: a that takes a lot of confidence to open with that. Mm. <laughs> if, that, if, that if that's your opening line, I mean, yeah, where are you you're, gonna, you're gonna go still from a the asshole? But you're confident, rape asshole. Yeah.
0: His... Although
2: the fact that he's her husband suggests it worked on her.
0: Mm. <laughs> Both his name and profession are Lug <laughs> uh, But uh, yeah We also get to know these two uh, um, uh, Brownies that have uh, Carried on with uh, uh, Willow First off you like they tie up Willow and Migos To the ground like Lilliputians mm. And uh, the, the top one Um Frangine uh, seems like he's he's French and he goes, "You are mine to toy with," and like they're both hilarious. And you got Kevin pollock there as Rule Rule. Rule? <laughs> Rule? Rule. And there's a, a, a bit where he accidentally uses the dust of broken hearts, which is some, it's, it's a key prop in the film, uh, cause it brings out that thing that we mentioned earlier where Mad Mardigan falls in love with Sorsha, briefly is infatuated and obsessed with her. Um, and this is just to establish what it does. Uh, Kevin, tiny Kevin Pollock falls in love with a cat and, uh, <laughs> it just kind of, like, it establishes that. Well, Sharon, you said that. Well,
2: my my theory is because, and in part, this is actually the the timing of how this dust of broken hearts works is
0: a little spotty.
2: Whatever they need, the narrative needs it to do. Because
0: Madmartigan like, sees
2: Ruthul-
0: Alora Willow, yeah. Finn Raziel, both yeah. brownies before Sorsha,
2: absolutely, and after getting hit in the face really with the stuff. Doesn't see now. I suppose that it, it could be. No, it's not species, because rule falls in love with a cat. Um,
0: Your suggestion was that it only plays upon uh, urges that would have been there already.
2: Yes. Which means
0: that rule has a thing... For, for cats. felines,
2: absolutely. Yeah, I um, assume he's
0: a furry already. He's got a mouse he has, head on. Yes,
2: he's wearing mouse armor the whole way through. <laughs> um, but the uh, the the reaction that you get from um, both of them when they get hit with it is that they go all kind of high and happy, and that sort of emphasizes that it's bringing out things in you that you would maybe like to act on, but wouldn't normally have the confidence to mm. do so. Basically,
3: removing your inhibitions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I love the fact that it's called the Dust of Broken Hearts, and I said that's what love potions should be called or Mm labelled as in Harry Potter. They're not love potions. They even say in Harry Potter it just creates a powerful infatuation. That's dangerous. Dust of Broken Hearts suggests it's only going to hurt people, not create love. Also, that the
2: fairies use it to mess with people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, obviously.
5: (laughs) What else would they do with it? Well, indeed.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Although uh, the fact that uh, Mad Mardigan falls in love with Joanne Wally and she what fuck, is, is infatuated with Joanne Wally and she has this shock of gorgeous, tumbling red hair would explain why from an early age I had a thing for redheads. And I think Tori Amos in the video for Crucify sealed the deal.
5: Can't oh. blame you. Right, right there with you.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Saoirse comes in, uh, acts like a complete hard-ass, and uh, um, almost manages to arrest Mad Mardigan. There's a cart chase with that Mad Mardigan theme that I mentioned, which is the first part of Willow's theme. Mm. Oh, yeah.
2: before we move on, just because this relates to what happens in the inn, um, there was a uh, remark that How- Ron Howard said in one of the extra material bits.
0: What, all the daikinis here are horrible racists who no, no, no. threaten to cook Willow?
2: no. Um, yeah. in terms of world building and everyone keeps
0: calling him peck as well
2: yeah well this is like a yeah, nickname yeah. for um, nelwyns yeah um but ron howard's uh, approach to the world building was apparently that he wanted to set up a universe where everything magical and unusual in mm. it was taken for granted by the other people in that world mm. and there's a line in the in the inn that exemplifies this perfectly which is when the brownies turn up and the <sighs> woman that mad martican has been romancing is like oh you are crawling with brownies
0: no Sorry. no he says you are crawling with brownies oh, she it. says oh, I
2: hate I hate brownies. brownies." that's it so yeah the, but the idea because she's racist that too all of these little um mysterious creatures that to us would be weird (coughs) and magical Mm. in this world they're
0: pests they're this is how you do it max landis (laughs) not not like bright
2: but it's it's just the fact that everybody's reaction to them all is is just they're there and they're normal it's Mm. not uh nobody seems weirded out by any of the magic or Mm. anything like that they
5: are annoyed by the magic
2: yes absolutely
0: so they proceed onwards after this uh, action sequence to uh barren island. This is the sorceress that he's been pointed towards, who's going to help them. And uh, it turns out to be a muskrat that speaks like a woman, a, a cantankerous old woman. And I think you mentioned before about dwarves not really using magic. Um, this was very informative for me uh, for uh, the Princess Thieves, the, uh, the fantasy story I wrote. It's uh, like the the Duarte, um who are the the, the halflingy like kind of tolkienish dwarfs but they don't behave in the same way uh in my uh, book series you get a certain percentage of them who have a mutation that allows them to fire cast and the rare magic is only accessible specifically to women i don't think i've actually um admitted that fact there but there's a reason that viola can do her status effects magic and that no male dwarf can and why they're afraid of it
2: Viola, stop. Stop at once, I say. Oh, I'm
3: so sorry. Sleep.
2: <sighs> Viola had cast oh. confuse on the princess, mm. who now stumbled drunkenly after her frantic companion. Oberon was gaining on them. Viola cast blindness. Yes! Oh, 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 oh. Oberon careered unceremoniously into a ditch. Whoa. Robin skidded after them, scrabbling across the overgrown paving and blinking back confusion to focus.
0: Uh. Ugh, please wait. It's not safe in the forest. It's
2: not safe anywhere in this cursed land.
0: Shh, no. Please.
2: Robin dodged the silence spell and grinned, realising that there was a certain physics to these. They could be avoided. <coughs> the confuse hit him square in the chest just as Gwen was returning his dopey grin. His eyes crossed and he doubled over, moaning. And this
0: is your periodic reminder that The Princess Thieves is available on Bandcamp in its entirety, priced at $12. Yeah, it's. Like I wanted to make that magic rare, but the character of Merlaine definitely has a foot in um, the Sorceress Finwëzel here. The, <laughs> the idea that the Merlin character happens to be female. There's a lot of Granny Weatherwax in there mm, too. Yeah. But I grew. I have. I had Willow for a good decade more than I had Lord of the Rings.
2: Mm, yeah, and she's a she's a contributing mentor to Willow as well. This is something that I, I kind of realised about Willow. He goes from this. Uh, young man who has so little confidence in himself yeah. and uh, he has multiple mentors throughout the film you've got everybody who offers him some support kind of contributes a small element to his progression so you've got the high old giving him uh, the responsibility of the quest and encouraging him to have more faith in himself uh shalindria uh, telling him that Laura likes him and giving him the wand and then Finresel is in ends up actively instructing him mm. in magic and gives him the uh the, the magic book as a reward at the end. The fundamentally the thing he does that saves the day is entirely him, but the fact that he's been fed into as thing as time goes on by all of these different mentors is, is a really nice touch because it, it then feels like this is about a team of people supporting each other. He didn't have to do all of this alone.
0: Mm. I also noticed a, a nice little throwaway line that um, uh, Mad Mardigan gets dragged back to them After he's gone off on his own And uh, uh, Willow feels like he's immediately betrayed them And then the guard holding Mad Mardigan says Told you we, Even though Mad Mardigan says Sorry uh, Peck Did he say sorry Peck?
2: I can't remember
0: or oh, sorry, Willow, um, yeah. the, the, the guard says, told you we'd find them without your help, which is a nice little throwaway li- and then punches him, tosses him to the floor, mm. nice little throwaway line to suggest that Mad Mardigan was beaten and still didn't give them up.
2: Yeah. Well, the same with the brownies saying that they, they stole Laura while uh, Mad Mardigan was taking a pee. Hmm. He, he doesn't, it's not as if he abandoned yeah.
0: her. And yet uh, Willow constantly berates Mad Mardigan for being irresponsible. Mm.
5: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, comparatively,
5: he is. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah Willow true. is responsibility responsibility yeah, imparted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, they're really nicely diametrically um, opposed because Willow is super responsible for everything mm. and Mad Mardigan is an irresponsible child.
2: Yeah, and ultimately, again, uh, in support of the, the dialogue of the screenplay, everybody being so awkward and snarky with each other all the time mm. means that when you get those moments of tenderness, they really mean something.
4: Yeah.
0: Mm hmm. <sighs> So they get dragged up into the mountains, like I said, which are from, in New Zealand and are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Adrian Biddle did it proud on on these things. Although, frankly, you just stand there with a snap camera, for, uh, like one of those old disposable party cameras, and still get a great picture there. <laughs> um, Some of the
5: backgrounds were actually in China. Oh, really? China yes. would not allow them. China wouldn't allow them to film on location, mm-hmm. so they sent a team down there and got a bunch of still shots to use on blue screens.
0: Nice. That is a <laughs> sneaky way of doing it. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's technically guerrilla filmmaking.
5: Yeah, 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 it is. Well,
0: um,
6: they were trolls, not gorillas.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: So there's another low point when uh, um, uh, it seems like uh, all, all has lost their capture. Then Madmart they they get themselves out. Uh, um, Willow turns the uh, sorceress from a muskrat into a crow, and then in a later castle, from a crow into a goat is just not very good at uh, magic. And uh, yeah, another thing, this is my first example of what feels like a little bit more of a hard magic system mm. where in doing the spell, it hurts Willow. It, it, you, it, yeah. it, it causes him a horrible arm cramp. Like when he like... It's, it takes a lot of concentration, and then it hurts him. I've seen a couple of hard magic systems since then, but I, like Viola needs to keep eating sugar, even though that, that it's not a one-to-one exchange of, of calories for the amount of expenditure. She needs a little something just to keep herself going. And whether she consumes sugar or not, she gets very tired, and multiple stacked spells exhaust her almost to the point of death sometimes. It just stands to reason that if you're expending your energy in wherever she's pulling the actual spell from, it's going to take something out of you. And it also stands to reason that if you then have a huge spell, that might kill you.
2: Yeah, it's never made sense to me that magic would be the easy option. It always seems much more crystallised and real if the magic takes as much, if not more, effort and focus and potentially pain as doing that thing with your muscles, except that you're hmm. using a different, um, source of, of, um,
0: yeah. strength. In Rowling's world, if it was a little harder of a system rolling, sorry, um, she like, after you like waved your hand and then the whole room tidied itself, you should really need to sit down on the couch and go, oh, I need a cup of wizard tea because <laughs> Jesus, that <laughs> took a bit out of me. Like it should be the same as if you had done it just a bit quicker. Mm. But that's like it's it's the that wouldn't it be lovely if which t- tends to govern uh, Rowling's world, until she gets really really dark and then it becomes yeah there's these terrible th- payments to pay for these dark spells
5: yeah it's not and lovely it's ob- at all actually yeah yeah
0: and it's
6: obviously a set of rules that like people understand and are aware of especially other sorcerers because Mm. you know he fakes doing that disappearing pig trick yeah and he pretends to have the big old pain in his arm um to to kind of sell it to bad morta so so she's like oh wait no that was a real thing Mm. um so it's there's a lot of like even in terms of just like little world building details there's a lot of clever like just reactions and and character beats that do a lot to like bring that to life
0: there's a, a, quite a bit of power of three. The acorns, he gets given some acorns that turn things to stone uh, by the high, high Old Wind. The first one he threatens Mad Mardigan with, which gets a snarky comeback. The second one he tries to use on a troll, and it uh, uh, falls onto a plank and turns the plank to stone. The third one he tosses at Babmorda, you're like, ah, yes, the acorns! And then Babmorda grabs it. And then, just like, oh it it actually like turns her her arm to stone for a bit, and she's like grabbing her arm and forcing the magic back out again it's a really great like give take push, pull, spell, and then uh-huh. she just sort of tosses away this dust in a kind of oh, you thought this was going to work well it's it it didn't well like that's a really great like way of like having a red herring item or a red herring thing that you think is gonna be the thing that saves the day and doesn't. It's very simple, but it's just it's a great delightful thing to use for smart kids who are like Acorn, Acorn, there, Acorn. Oh
2: Also that shows that magic works on her. She is not immune to it, which yeah. kind of gives you that feeling of, oh well, maybe they do stand the chance after all. Yeah. Oh
7: boy. Always playing with those fairy love potions. Oh.
3: No
5: whiskers. I have to kiss you. Ruin that Dust of Broken Heart. Yeah.
0: We said the Dust of Broken Hearts thing works, which again, like, it gets established with the cat, then they hit him with them, they say Dust of Broken Hearts at least twice just to re establish that one, and then Uh it finally takes its effect with uh, Sorsha. Uh oh. And I still really love this scene. It's a little old fashioned, little Shakespearean, and it stays just on the right side of harassment because Saoirse is the one who holds the physical power. She could at any point kill him and doesn't. Plus, it's really funny. And it's also, on reflection, kind of sad. I mean, Val Kilmer may be at his absolute hottest here, but you can extrapolate that Saoirse never been spoken to like this. Oh, Saoirse. Uh. Everybody wants to feel adored. To heal your eyes.
1: One move, jackass, and you really will be a woman. You are my sun, my moon, my starlit sky. Without you, I dwell in darkness. I love you.
2: What are you doing here?
1: Your power has enchanted me. I stand helpless against it. Come to me now, tonight. Let me worship you in my arms.
2: Get
4: away from me!
1: I love you!
4: Stop saying that!
1: How can I stop the beating of my heart? It pounds like never before.
4: Out of fear. Out of love. I can stop it. I'll kill you.
1: Death next to love is a trivial thing. It'd
0: actually be a lot worse of a scene if this wasn't coming from an enchantment. Your touch is worth a hundred thousand deaths.
4: What goes
0: on here? It's General Kale here to ruin your drinking water. They slide down the mountain in this again dazzling uh, uh, stunt sequence. Although there's several times when it's like that's just a dummy hold. Well, that's just a stuntman holding a dummy, and that's a dummy holding a dummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah. this looked like it probably might kill people, so well, yes, I'm, I was I'm fine say, with that. More
2: than once, I was yeah. like, that looks. Hmm. Pretty bad, but I am very glad they didn't literally throw Warwick Davis
7: down that hill.
0: Oh, Maya, any insight on the stunts on this film? You've been quite quiet so far.
7: Um, not, not especially, although I will say it is kind of hilarious. Like the cart scene we briefly mentioned Mm -hmm. that I think was uh, a good showcase of some of the best stunts in the Mm -hmm. film, because you have a lot of horse falls. You've got people, I mean, even driving a horse with a cart behind it is Mm -hmm. really difficult. Like that's a skill in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So whoever was doubling Val Kilmer at this time in in movie history uh did a really great job there's some really great uh pratfalls and and people doing good sword work and whatnot although I, it is funny now to see like uh, there were times where you know th- the devil would kind of roll over and you could see him trying to hide his face but there are times where it's like mm. uh, there just wasn't any way of hiding it and now when we have like high definition you know, copies of this movie. It's like, wow, they really let that stuntman shine, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> They're not even trying to hide his face yeah. at all. And I would say, like, uh, some of the stuff that really stood out to me, like, yes, I could definitely tell it was mm. probably, you know, Kilmer's double and he's holding a, a dummy, Warwick Davis. You wouldn't want to put an actual person down at that at that high speeds. Although, you know, the real person doing, like, the falls kind of like... uh very reminiscent of the princess bride where mm. buttercup and wesley are kind of tumbling down that hill forever it sort of reminds me of that a little bit that's my favorite
0: stuntman switch out because if you just if you pay close attention in high def on that that princess bride thing buttercup has a long gray ponytail and i was sure i saw she had a beard at the one point maybe i imagined it in but, the industry, uh, yeah. we
7: call it a cowboy switch or Texas switch. That's oh, yeah. what that is. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, I, I thought that was uh, that was really good, and I think towards uh, towards the end there are some places where I was like, oh, okay, well that kick was a miss or whatever. Mm. But a lot of the sword work looks really good still and uh yeah there they did some some fairly impressive hmm. stuff in here for a, a team that was probably either a british stunt team or, or from new zealand which you know uh at that time probably there probably wasn't a whole lot of very skilled people in that industry so hmm. you know i gave them a lot of props for finding people that could do this sort of thing it takes a lot of It takes a lot of skill, and it's very specific skills as well. It's not something that just Hmm. anybody would be able to do.
0: Uh, Another of my favorite Texas switches is in T2 when that motorcyclist is coming around the side of the uh, uh, T1000's truck in the uh, LA uh, canals. Uh, and just has to just go around the side as the trucks just crushing into the wall and intercept John Connor and get him onto his bike. He looks like Van Damme for a while and then turns into Arnold Schwarzenegger for the next shot. It's it's great. <laughs> but like seeing that happen in in my head, I'm like, "Fuck, that must have been dangerous." Like wh- whenever if they, they they completely paste a digital face over the actor these days, um, I'm not sure if I'm seeing a digital actor or a stuntman with a digital face like that, that obvious Texas switch out uh, like that, that was a sign that next might've been broken otherwise.
6: And there's, there's yeah. a lot of really clever just playing with scale in that, in that one first action scene you were talking about, Maya, the, um, because you've got like a basic, you know, horse cart chase, but then you also have Willow's struggle to reach the reins is, is this, exponentially harder thing because he's about half of Valkymer size. Mm-hmm. And then you have the brownies where we're just like being close to the edge and having to deal with like detritus rolling around on the bed of the thing. And then they, they mm-hmm. play with the, the brownies having this, this big, you know, cut the rope to release the giant, you know, boulder. Except barrels, it's just, yeah. it's just mm-hmm. a barrel to like conk a guy on a head to, you know, it's, it's a very impressive editing and, and scale like play as well as being a, you know, a really good stunt mm-hmm. example hmm.
7: yeah I, and i and i again, again i imagine that this must have been very difficult to cut all together and even though you know watching this now is like okay some of these effects are a little bit dated and whatnot but it's still admirable that they tried to do as much practically as they could and you can see that they're real things it's just there's a lot of the whole we're cutting in these people against a map painting and it's very obvious when that's when they've done that um, But I still do really appreciate that They did a lot of this stuff practically And that mm. you know this is not just a Digital model of somebody falling off a horse That's a person actually falling off Of a horse and it's pretty dangerous mm. mm-hmm.
3: And the Those kind of the, the things that are a little Bit janky and a little bit um, You know yeah we know Especially now you know most movie Goers are a lot more educated than people used to be But there's a definite Charm to it yeah. Even even if it looks yeah. maybe not the best or most ideal, it it you still like it and you still appreciate looking at it. I guess
0: there was a certain um, a certain glow to the effects of uh, industrial light and magic, which just uh, it, it spoke a very specific visual language to me. As uh, you know, when I watched so many of these movies as a kid, anything produced by Spielberg or produced by Lucas, and just. It had that, um, you know, what-you're-watching-is-special feel to it. And it's tougher now to differentiate between different effects houses because everything is made to look kind of the same, like it's supposed to look in real life. There's a bit less stylization on the effects. It's like, imagine a gunship that looked like this. And it's, it's it's entirely CG, and it's like it's, 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 and it, it kind of doesn't matter who made it. Uh, it it's it, it might sometimes come down to the individual directors to go right. Well, we need to make it sell this thing and make it feel like it has <coughs> real weight in the world. Uh, but uh, you know, back in the day, there was there was a lot more sort of like we've got a model here, and then we've got a, like a scale thing there where people are actually stepping off it or onto it, and and so having to use tricks within the frame of the camera to convince you that what you were seeing was real rather than pasting it on afterwards. It, it could just be that uh, all the other effects houses just weren't as good as ILM in those days, so it just that, that's why it, everything else had to be kind of uh, a little bit cheaper by the look of him.
3: Well, they were so pioneering. I mean, mm. they so many things that they'd made for Star Wars became you know kind of standards in the industry and things we expect now and they they started it so yeah i would expect there they yeah. were the best effects house at the time
0: mm. hell they premiered they premiered a technique in this movie another thing that uh, happens is that a lot of effects houses these days you they get Many effects houses to work on one production, like you, you know, we need you to work on this and you to work on this. And I would imagine that was probably still something they did in the day. It's just that there were fewer effects houses worldwide that could be gotten to, that could get you the stuff in time. Like now, they can actually just send it to you, but uh, uh, via um, uh, digitally. But it, it, like all of the practical stuff would have to be filmed in a completely different studio and then ship the film to you and all of the different elements and effects. And as a director, you'd have real trouble marrying those up in time so yeah i suppose it's probably uh, a much um, not necessarily simpler process now but an easier to uh coordinate around the world process whereas back in the day it was more sort of hands-on with who you had there
3: logistically easier
0: right. i suppose yeah <clears throat> um so there's a uh a big snow chase like we mentioned and uh they find uh, Eric and his um soldier buddies hiding down in a village and Eric again says Mad Modigan is just a worthless thief to Willow in this really crushing moment of like you like he's gonna let you down. And this is the point where Eric is, is, is kind of giving in to uh despair because they were thrashed mm. and uh, there's only a few of them left Absolutely, and that's really the turning point for Mag Mardigan he can either just go sod this I'm going elsewhere or he's in in it for the long haul and this is his I'm in it till the end of the line speech Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a little little thing like I serve the Nelwyn just it's a real like again all of yeah. these things we're extrapolating they're from very sparing bits of dialogue mm. but it still made a huge impact when we were young
5: Yeah, One of the things that um, I quite liked about it is that Eric accuses him of being a thief. He says, I'm not a thief. Mm. And, I mean, very clearly he is a thief. Or at least he was. Mm. This is a tense issue here where he isn't anymore. Mm. He very clearly isn't anymore, at least to him. And Willow even has that moment of, are you? And, no, he's not. Mm. He's he's sort of, he has given that up. Um, I think, uh, Sharon, I think you're right. It's where Where his uh, arc ends is, I serve the Nelwyn, Mm -hmm. and this is him kind of coming to that conclusion Mm -hmm. that he is a better person now.
0: Willow, Mad Mardigan, and Sorsha all have to redefine themselves in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been taken away from everyone else who knows them, and it looks like the chips are down. Who am I now? And who Mm -hmm. am I going to continue to be? And so, yeah, Sorsha decides, I'm going to stop kicking people in the face and stomping on things and actually, like... See if I can help people because I kind of I've been charmed by this. Uh, Mad Mardigan's like I'm going to stop only thinking about myself, and Willows I'm going to stop letting other people tell me I'm crap and useless, and that <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be able to do anything because I'm so small. It's. I mean, that's that's the the, the Tolkien spirit in there. Like he would probably go, oh, "It was ghastly about most of it," but the idea that Willow about eventually things, de- <laughs> that, that Willow eventually decides, you know, that, that he's going to be able to do this and you know to be able to push through, even when um, Elora gets taken by General Kale, this skull wearing Pat Roach guy. I don't think we mentioned him yet, have we?
2: Uh, very briefly. Yeah,
0: he's like the he's the Meow. big henchman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he was the guy. Skeletor. Dude, yeah.
7: dude, I just kept thinking of Skeletor the entire time. <laughs> I forgot about this guy, and every time he came on screen, I was just like, <laughs> Like I, I couldn't help it. It's just so silly, but it's great. It's it's really yeah. great.
0: You know, bumbling
7: boob
5: it came out a year after uh, Masters of the Universe, yeah. And again, same concept artist, Mobius. Oh, nice. Mm.
0: That makes yeah. a lot of
5: sense.
0: Uh. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's played by Pat Roach, who you may remember as Eh Jungen from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's the big German, beefy fist fighter who ends up getting churned up in a propeller. Uh, more on that next this year, in fact. Um, but uh, he was also in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He's that big, beefy thuggy guy who gets squashed into a meat grinder. Uh, he was also <laughs> that big beefy guy that Barry Lyndon had a fist fight with. He was also that big beefy guy in uh, uh, Never Say Never Again that Sean Connery had a fist fight with, and then threw a cup of wee wee all over him.
5: Are we saying- so? What you're saying is, yeah, what you're saying is that he has quite a range.
0: Yeah, <laughs> if you want a big beefy intimidating guy, he's your man, Pat Roach.
6: Yeah, they were definitely going for a lot of like Lucasfilm franchise callbacks. Uh, yeah. Aside from. There, there being a lot of the uh, the returning character actors, or, or at least you know Pat Roach, and then you've got um, Warwick Davis. You, there's even a blink and you'll miss it stunt man with a Darth Vader esque Nokmar helmet uh, mm. during the during the siege of Lane.
0: Nice.
3: Just props, literally, <laughs> to Oops. whoever designed that because that helmet is amazing. <laughs> yes. I, I love the skull helmet.
0: Oh, well, you mean For Kale's years, helmet?
5: Like, Wouldn't it be dumb? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, dumb
0: yeah dumb no, dumb. absolutely. It's really striking.
5: Yeah. For years I was like it's kind of dumb to wear a human skull on your face mm. but you know, now I'm looking at it I'm like you know what it actually literally saved his life mm. like he broke his human skull but he had a little bit of blood in his beard as opposed to a sword in his jaw yeah. so I- I'll give him credit on that one
0: I think it helps because Pat Roach is such a beefy guy if it was a thin person with like the skull motif then that, that kind of makes him seem like a living skeleton but he's basically the mountain that rides but with a skull <laughs> yeah and and, and okay. less terrifyingly, like you know, upsetting in Absolutely. terms of what he does, and, and, he, and less he's, annoying yeah. in his like living forever until a very disappointing death.
2: Yeah, he's also a, a contributor to how I kind of saw Sauria's role because they're both Bavmorda's captains, but I always got the feeling that sorsha is like her captain in the field in terms of like scouting and hunting, mm-hmm. and Kale is her captain in outright battle yeah. and when Sorsha hits the point in her character arc where she's like right I am no longer just going to be told by my mother what to do um, Kale continues to do exactly what Bavmorda sends him to do even though the general tone you get from the, the way tone. he holds himself and the way oh. he talks is actually not that of an evil man just of a very neutral man who. Does oh, what he's instructed. The
0: baby of the Soldier. One who would yeah, destroy you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. He's he's Eric. He's not, really not much different from Eric.
0: Uh-huh. Mm. Mm-hmm very determined and uh, uh, again like, like i said that that face because we only ever really see him with the the battle mask down is 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 really intimidating mm-hmm. um so they end up pitching up at Tirizlin, this castle they've told is going to be their salvation and it's abandoned and knackered everyone's, been turned, everyone's been turned to stone there's troll shit everywhere and uh yeah it's it, it's it's a dead end literally and the uh, um the army's coming And this is where Mad Mardigan does what... When I was a kid, I was like, oh, it's brilliant. Like, he prepares for battle and he actually kind of wins and it's like... or or at least holds his own. It is a really... Like, it's a very lucky battle prep because there's no reason they shouldn't be shot to pieces by arrows.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Mad Mardigan's plan is to shoot
0: two guys with crossbows and then face down a hundred soldiers waving his sword and it just happens that a giant two-headed dragon materialises behind him.
2: And then question mark. As we said, he's not the yeah. greatest strategist in the world yeah. um, but the one of the things that I noted down is that the there are so many heroics in this film that get pulled off through luck more than judgement and they kind of the, the fact that Mad Martigan is always falling over mm. does sort of underline the fact that it is luck rather than judgement and I think um, there's a bit in the novelization where uh, when they get to Lean and they find the armoury, he's picking out all these bits and pieces to to wear because so far he's been wearing the, the Hilda dress wrapped around his leg and a sack that's what he mm. arrived here in a mm-hmm. um, good sack yeah. and he has a real problem finding stuff that fits him everything's old and dusty and mm. they're, they're not well Provisioned, they are not. You know, they don't have stuff that they can carry out a battle with. He finds
0: a pretty sweet suit of armor, but like all the armor in Willow, it's like it looks cool. But then when you get it in the close-ups, especially in blue, where you're like, okay, the pauldron is way over there, leaving the whole of the back of his shoulder completely bare, and there's this <laughs> little tea bag of uh, chainmail just dangling to the left. It's 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 just dangling, and it, he don't even know it. It's like that's not going to stop a sword blow, an arrow, uh, unless a golf ball falls. On you, you're pretty much exposed. <laughs> but when I was a kid, it was like he finds this badass suit of armor and he like takes on a whole army alone. I thought his name was Mad Martigan, like Mad Max.
6: Yep, yeah, same, same. Kind
0: yeah. of seems like he like he seems genuinely crazy in this fight. And honestly, the. the like his charm comes out when uh, he's he's running to help Willow, and then this dragon appears a- uh, again, and then he looks at the top of the dragon's head that he's now above, and goes. <sighs> And then, like, like <laughs> sighs and jumps onto it to do the heroic thing and gets tossed about, obviously, as this horrendous, like, uh, little puppety thing, ragdoll, just like Legolas would 13 years afterwards mm. on top of the cave troll. He he wins points, and so she's like, watching him throughout the battle for just chutzpah and bravery, even though all of his tactics would, should get him killed. Mm. If, you know, I've mentioned this before about, like, enemies running around in the background going, nyah, 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 but not actually closing in on our heroes. This is the greatest offender for that. There are two people actually fighting in this particular battle, and a whole army of Nokmar soldiers, all of whom are fixated on this two-headed dragon that Fro- I was called in Frodo Willow conjures accidentally. Um, what is he turns a troll he's into a disgusting to, hairless testicle?
2: Yeah, he's trying to do something and then something kicks it into the mud, and then it falls mm-hmm. in yeah. the river, and then turns into the two-headed beast. But he's doing what Willow does best, which is illusory magic. Yeah. everybody look this way. We're, we're running that way.
0: And this dragon is called the the Siskelbert or something. It's based on Ebersisk. Ebersisk, Yeah, it's based on Siskel and Ebert. And it's like that's what we think of you. You ugly bastards. <laughs> General
5: Chaos. Wow. Named after Pauline Kale. Pauline so Kale, nice. yep.
0: She, she was like, what about this thing. <laughs> yeah. Quite famously, Pauline Kale, writing for The New Yorker back in 1977, saw the original Star Wars and said, I'm going to let Mikey Newman take this.
1: Oh, dull new world. We are treated to a galactic civil war. Assorted heroes and villains. A princely maiden in distress. A splendid old man surviving from an extinct order of knights who possessed a mysterious power called the Force. And it is all as exciting as last year's weather reports.
4: Turn down for what?
1: Aren't Barcha!
0: Yeah! Woo! But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, like, it's a fun battle, but when you've seen Helm's Deep, you're like, oh, this is, this is uh, the mild source.
7: And when you've like seen that. Return of the Jedi, it's a bit of, well, this is kind of just the Rancor in yeah. this little Rancor pit, little right? Bit, yeah. Like, it's yeah. kind of got that feel to it as well.
0: And it's, yeah. uh, it's great, because it, it grabs a troll and, like, tears it in half between these two heads. And these trolls are basically just, like, somewhere between those uh, apes at the beginning of 2001 and Wookiees, only they're disgusting. Mm. So uh, it's it's kind of neat seeing... I scene, think,
2: personally, like, they just took the... Co- the the, the uh, wild oh no they're not wild but the dogs that they send after the baby yeah. at the beginning are basically Rottweilers with costumes on yeah. and the mm-hmm. trolls look like they took those Rottweiler costumes and put them on a person yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah.
7: yeah.
0: yeah they're these ugly it scurrying is... things and they shit everywhere
7: it is kind of cool when they're like crawling around the castle though yeah. like that's a, a genuinely kind of creepy weird effect yeah. my only issue with this whole uh, battle scene and like as as we mentioned before for the most part, the cinematography is really beautiful in this mm. film, even you know by to, by today's standards. The battle scene, though, I felt like you know with some of these weird creatures coming around and the the trolls kind of scurrying along, these little black shadows that are just crawling about the castle. It would have been nice if they had done a little bit more atmosphere for this scene. Like mm. if there was one technical thing that kind of bothered me about it, it was like you know if they'd. Put in a little bit more fog or, or they weren't trying to mm. to do this day for night sort of thing because you can tell it that it's filmed in in daylight that it was shot in daylight and they're sort of trying to pass it as a little bit darker mm. sometimes it works and sometimes it's the lighting's just kind of flat and doesn't really lend a whole lot to the atmosphere to it so it yeah. would have been cool if they had just thrown in something more to to make it a little creepier or darker or you know done something with the the lighting in the atmosphere to, to really push
5: the darkness that's happening in the scene wait hold on a second that was that was not supposed to be a daylight battle no, my I entire was, life up to this point I is, thought that is, was daylight me, that yeah. was just, I assumed yeah. that it was just overcast <laughs>
0: Well, it's like I the think, darkest yeah. hour at that point, and it's uh, they, they, it actually ends with Kale riding off with Alora, and like you know, and it's sold as a really sad, terrible moment because Willow comes staggering out, bleeding from the head, and Warwick Davis just collapses and really goes down, and it's just like, oh shit.
6: Yeah, I think it's supposed to be sunset, but no, like sword fights, like large-scale sword fight battle type things. Mm. Fog or rain, that that's just science, I'm sorry. It's always better with <laughs> there's fog yeah, or, or rain
7: or yeah. at night because yes, yeah, so and when it is overcast, yeah, you do get kind of like an even lighting and that does help in a lot of cases if mm. you're just trying to get a very flat even lighting for a scene, but in a battle like this, I don't think it, it quite worked like mm. they could have done something a little bit different to add to the creepiness or add to the danger factor just something uh something that was a little bit more than just that overcast flat even lighting hmm. get that cat out of here <laughs> sorry that's Alice's the line but
0: <laughs> so they uh they that's it's from the man with two brains he's trying to do brain surgery and there's like get that cat out of here the whole time um <laughs> that's some bomb scissors that cut out of here. Yes, sir.
3: You're holding me too tight. No,
6: well, I don't want you to get away.
3: Why? Because I'm your sun, your moon, your
1: starlit sky? Get your hair out of my face or I'll chop it off. Did I really... Did I really say those things last night in your tent?
4: You
3: said you loved me.
1: I don't remember that.
3: You lied to me.
1: No, I... Just wasn't myself last night.
3: I suppose my power enchanted you and you were helpless against it. Sort of. Then what? It went away. Went away.
4: I dwell in darkness without you and it went away. Yeah! <clears throat>
0: So they lose Alora, but they gain Sorsha at this point, and it's it's a uh, it's a low point. They uh, ride post haste to uh, the the castle, where Bab Mordor is uh, preparing a ritual to cast this baby in what I can only assume is a pre-made baby sack that she had prepared. <laughs> Yeah, the baby bondage is a little strange. Yeah, that's right. She's wrapped in duct tape. <laughs>
2: the the essence, I think Lyra asked, where did they get duct tape mm. from in this world? Um, but the, the essence of this Magic. is um, that if if Bav Morda just kills the child...
0: She'll get reborn. She'll
2: be reincarnated and come back and get her again. Mm. And the only way that she can prevent that from happening is to do this ritual so that her soul will go somewhere where it's not going to come back.
0: So the idea is that the soul is what's going to take down Bavmorda. Yes. Mm -hmm. this is ridiculous desperation and again it turns out to be one of those wonderful self-fulfilling prophecies um It's it's kind
7: of cool that, like, the ritual seems to, like, it takes a really long time. Like, they're they're fighting and, like, the sun's coming up. And it's like, wow, this ritual is still going on. And, you know, just going back to what you were saying about the hard magic where there is a price to pay, you can physically see that it's taking a lot out of Babmorta. Mm. It's not Mm -hmm. just this quick and easy thing where she can snap her finger and it's done. It takes time. It takes preparation. And she is being drained like physically looks like she's aging as this is happening there's a or bowl of blood there
0: my guess yeah. is mm-hmm. it's bad waters yeah
5: yeah mm-hmm. she, she's up all night doing this
0: ritual and mm. that's just the first right yeah and so she the stops right begins. she stops to turn everyone into a pig
2: oh i love yeah. this because this is right this whole turn everybody into pigs thing is sissy not that sissy yeah the proper
0: Cersei, mute pig, mm-hmm. and yeah, she uh, the the, the ex army. They turn up. They lay siege to the castle, and like rather than going, you know we, we're going to need to have a big war. She just goes, oh, for fuck's sake, pigs! <laughs> <laughs> it's a really effective scene because like, you're like okay, we got an army here. Nope, that's useless. You're all pigs. You're all-
1: come for a Laura Dannen.
2: You dare to challenge me?
1: You're not warriors. Hey. <laughs>
0: She lays waste to this arm. But
2: here's the other thing as well. This is the point where she realises that she's lost Saoirse. And it gives, again, a layer of dimensionality to uh, Bav Morda's character. She gets sloppy at this point. She is angry about the fact that her daughter has, has, you know, betrayed her
0: which may lead to a tactical oversight. I said Mad Mardigan's not great at tactics. Once they're all pigs, she should just mutter to Kale, go and make me 1,000 bacon sandwiches. But instead, (laughs) no one's keeping an eye on the pigs. Like, Warwick, Willow turns Finrazel back from a goat into an ostrich into... A turtle, into a tiger, into a naked girl, into the much older version mm. of uh, herself.
2: Yeah, basically she's this whole time she's been a possum, she's yeah. been aging.
0: And it's been a long, long time. Has it been so long? Which is a really lovely moment of like existential, oh shit, you spent a long time as a muskrat. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that just feels incredibly cool because when she gets back to human form she she was a young beautiful woman
2: but before. i like that because the uh, the implication there is that, that the she's only been, person yeah. who is really particularly invested in her being a young and beautiful woman <laughs> is Mad Martigan. She is yeah. just as powerful as she ever Comfort was. The fact that she's yeah. older does not affect the fact that she's an incredibly powerful witch.
0: Again, though, that laugh comes at exactly the right place because they're trying to do hard magic to turn this animal into another animal, and it's like it's getting kind of floaty and magic-y, and then he comes along with this selfish little kind of, oh, you're turning her into a, 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 a hot girl so that I can ogle her.
2: Yeah. Focus, Willow.
0: You you already know she doesn't like you, dude.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she she bit you already. Yeah. Um, oh, no, the... she bit Willow. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it's
5: blood the... magic.
2: Yeah, oh, good point. She, yeah, yeah. she may not like him,
5: but he then goes on to somebody who kicked him in the face. So. That's
2: true, yeah. yeah, yeah. He is a bit of a masochist. Strong, dominant
3: women.
5: Yep.
0: Yes, yeah. definitely. Again, the Ooh, energy of this that film. That was another
2: tiny little moment that I, m- I noticed actually. When he um, he talks to Saoirse later on, and I think this is after the dust of broken hearts has worn off. Hmm. So his um, her appeal is starting to become more genuine to him at this point, or more sincere. And um, he kind of smiles <laughs> and strokes his face hmm. where she kicked him. <laughs> Uh-huh. In that kind of, oh, uh, this is where her foot touch. She kicks shall really hard. I never wash
6: hard.
7: this cheek again.
6: Okay, so like- I mean, in his in his defense, like <laughs> Joanne Wally is exuding some serious please step on me energy in that, like, in my that
5: specifically. <laughs>
2: the record, by the way, the yeah, poster... Yeah, we're going to get some
5: duct tape from Ed Mardigan.
2: The poster for Scandal? Mm-hmm. Ah.
0: Uh-huh. I need to see that, huh?
2: You do. It's just her naked sitting backwards on a chair.
0: Sitting on a chair backwards. <laughs> yes. Yep. Ah.
2: <laughs> on a backwards chair.
0: Yep, that's the one. Um, <laughs> anyway, imagine you're on the battlements of Knockmar Castle... <laughs> And you're looking down, and they've all turned into pigs, and there's clothes everywhere, armor everywhere, as they've fallen out of their armor. And then uh, Finrazel says to Willow, Let them in. Like, you know, one pig at a time. <laughs> <laughs> the moment, like, imagine just, just trying to let in one pig at a time. So you're watching all of these pigs individually going into a tent, and then naked people scurry out <laughs> to, to sift around in the dark to, to find. find them. Clothes. Their own clothes, or maybe just oh, someone else's clothes. Gosh. Imagine the organization to get a hundred naked troops mm. back into their armour. This is
2: like the biggest walk of shame yeah. ever. <laughs>
0: And then eventually, like, also, you are asleep at the post because nobody looks over the battlements and sees everybody digging enormous trenches to put like like they don't just dig these things and like get, they get the the soldiers underground and under tarpaulins and things. They get rid of the earth that would have been there. Like, there's a full like like proper demolition going on here. There
2: is, yeah, <laughs> digging a series of tunnels. <laughs>
0: And not one of these soldiers gets hungry for bacon.
2: No, no. Unless they... Right, OK, there may have been a massive distraction trick going on at this point. If they turn half of the pigs back into people, then they get on with the digging while the other half go round the other side of the castle and just mill about to keep the guards' attention.
0: What are the pigs doing right now? <coughs> Nothing much, just being <laughs> just pig. uh, oh, are these eating pigs. Eating truffles. It's never really established whether these pigs can understand English.
2: True. Yeah. True. Oh, the, the cutest little thing though is that if you notice, two of the pigs are tiny, and that's Gene yeah, and Rule. They're <laughs>
0: piglets. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. so
5: apparently the, the reason we didn't see a whole lot of the pigs is because they're having trouble keeping them from mating on camera Yeah, uh, <laughs> they had to keep throwing cold water on them literally so we only had that one shot of the army as pigs and it lasts what two seconds out they, get out getting pigs pig on pig action did they,
2: did they bring lug with them and he got turned into a pig and went around to everybody going wanna breed
5: oh, <laughs> yeah <gosh. laughs> Well, that, that's also the thing is that theoretically, I mean, I didn't see any women in Eric's uh, what's called, in Eric's army, so I'm guessing there was some situational homosexuality going on here. Yeah, you're an, you're a soldier, you're on the march, you get turned into a pig, and you know.
0: There you is eat. very little gay pig representation in movies, and that is something we can definitely adjust. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, inside the castle, any
7: pig in a storm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So inside the castle, Mumra's ex-wife is carrying on with her blood magic, trying to get rid of this baby. At no point does uh, Jean Marsh's wonderful, like vicious old bitch, Bhav Morda, She never sort of looks at the baby and goes, "Ah, oh, this is bad, even for me." <laughs>
7: <laughs> no, but,
0: but, she, but I
7: tell you what, like Jean Marsh, like she's she's great. I oh, love yeah, Jean Marsh. Um, so just uh, she's also um. For people who return to Oz. She's, yeah. she's Princess Mombi, And she's just great. And I love this end part where she's going through the ritual because she is just devouring this scenery. And it's great. Like yeah. it's uh-huh. so amazing. And like when she's, she's really like, chewing the heck out of
0: it. When she does the pig spell, she's like, you're all pigs! At one point she goes <laughs> like, like that'll <laughs> make it stronger. Like <laughs> really <laughs> snorting it up. Yeah. <laughs>
3: And the thing I said when, like, right at, we, at the beginning of the movie, I was like, you know, if I'm ever an evil sorceress, and there's a prophecy like this, what you do is you don't kill all the children. You you, you create all these events for children, you have really good, really good social programs, all these kinds of things, and then mm-hmm. you you look and you mentor and you find the one you're looking for Mm -hmm. and you take them and make them your apprentice and you treat them amazingly well
5: yeah that or you just you just kill the one because if if if, you know you're going through dozens and dozens of babies somebody's going to notice if one baby disappears
0: Mm -hmm. oh well And at the, you know, when this baby is is 20 years old and uh, you you, you are now considerably older and you actually do love them because you've spent all this time trying to make sure that they're happy so that they won't kill you, Uh, they uh, accidentally, you're playing pop-up in the backyard, they chuck a ball, it hits you in the head, kills you instantly, but at least you died happy.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that
0: didn't exactly work with Sorsha, now did it? Yeah, mm-hmm. no. Traitor
2: child, but I must despise you now! You can
0: always tell yeah. the, the, the ones who are going to get hoisted on their own petard because they're fine-killing babies. Because they're
2: in the back garden yielding yeah. a petard yeah. for a start. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that petard needs to be twice as big! Okay. So, um, th- uh, uh, Willow does this trick whereby everybody buries themselves and then they wait for the gates to be opened and then... Kale falls right into it, <laughs> sends out some men, and then Willow like bangs on the drum, and everyone bursts out. It goes away and gets into the castle. Now the gate is finally open, uh, and. Um didn't actually during the discussion mm. uh, uh, they say, "Won't you just turn us into pigs again?" And Philomel goes, "No, my magic will protect you." It's yes. like I've got anti-pig shields. Yeah. up. Could
2: your magic <laughs> do anything else to get us into the castle like, other than we're going now? Leaving you some blankets as yes. per usual. Bye. <laughs>
7: Maximo. Your <No. laughs>
0: yeah.
7: magic doesn't cover teleportation into a castle. Sorry.
0: So actually, I
5: assume that Bad like had a anti like a shield like a star trek style shield over hmm. her castle that only works against magic that would be sensible so yeah. you can't but teleport also- in, like you can't teleport through star trek shields unless you can yeah, in this also, case same deal. here
7: here's the other thing though like Sortia is right there she used to live in this castle presumably does she not know a back entrance or something like could she not have snuck them in did she not know like a little sewer system or like i don't know that just seemed a little bit weird like sorcerer's right there and she's not saying anything like oh i've got a i've got a key to something or i've got the, the entrance to the back door is this way like nothing
5: would be surprised how few castles have secret entrances
7: just... perfectly good waste of a of a castle in my opinion yeah i know
5: <laughs> I, I i don't get it my cat why would you castles, not have a secret they will ent- have all sorts of secret entrances <laughs> Oh You'll yeah. Be like door, major yeah, there's
7: secret entrances. Yeah, there's going to be that like perfectly sized hole where you can run a bomb into it and take the whole thing down. Like it's going to have yeah. all
0: that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, there's a, another massive fight going on, and this one is in the rain. Ah, so you get some of those uh, atmospheric that's effects right. going on, and and, there's, and they use stairs.
6: So... Yep. There, there you go. A lot of verticality there.
0: Uh, people like um, people getting stabbed left, right, and center. Ooh.
2: Left, right and centre, <laughs> yeah. yes. Kale yeah. gets
0: Eric, who by the way is like that asshole from Superman three. Uh, he's uh, he's the one who like wants Lana Lang for himself. Um, like he he's so much more like like heroic in this than he was like that rat like guy in uh, um, uh, uh, Superman 3 he's a Gavin he is uh, his name and um, yeah he gets horribly killed by General Kale and says win this war for me I die and that's very much a Boromir thing mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Mad Modigan's guy I will not let the White city fall and um, grabs X really like weird like super long arm protecting sword swords like i'm going to use this unusual weapon even even though it that
2: i clearly have no practice with
0: unbalances yeah. me and two-handing swords makes things very very difficult but okay i'm going to go up there and 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 he, he ultimately it's the having two swords that actually saves his ass when he's up against uh, kale and uh, and he does manage to kill him which again like he like Kale snaps one of his swords then he does like a little spinny thing stabs him with the with the snapped off end and then like stabs him with another sword and then like stamps on the broken end of the blade to point it upwards towards Kale's chest and then drags him onto this fucking sword blade it's oh it's awesome <laughs> and then for good measure he kicks this massive armored guy off the battlements crashing down to the concrete floor below
4: he and they very, very determined to that, make these
0: dead. That's basically Mad Mardigan's triumphant victory. It's not specifically doing something that philosophically uh, uh, is very much in line with uh, with something he didn't do before. It's that his victory of ideals is when he says, "I serve the Nelwyn." This is just him being the greatest swordsman who ever lived.
5: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that uh, that uh, Eric's. Um gauntlet sword thing of thingamabobber that has been bothering me for a good decade now um i'll basically just when i started fencing because i'm thinking about that and i'm like okay so maybe as a secondary the way mad martigan uses it on his in his offhand okay sure i can kind of see that especially when you cut off the end of it because otherwise it is way too long mm. and you're not you can't use your wrist. Yeah. So you're really reducing the amount of, you know, usefulness you have on this. I mean, on the other hand, yes, you do get basically the leverage of your entire arm that way, mm-hmm. but the way that the sword fighting works in this movie it is way too quick. Now, if this were, you know, Borman's Excalibur, mm. where it's all very kind of slow and everything feels very heavy and very, you know, more of like a bludgeoning thing than an actual sword, yeah. then, yeah, I could kind of see that being helpful. But in this movie, the fencing in it, which I love in general is very quick, very, uh, I don't want to say flashy, because while it does look kind of flashy, that's not really, you know, it's not There's flashy, a flourish that's to that's-
0: it. It kept the sword fighting exciting rather than realistic. It's like Braveheart, you're like, oh, cool, a yeah. battle. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, you got the <laughs> legs being chopped off. Like I think Braveheart's the first battle I saw where, like, all of the, like, guys, you know, hitting each other with swords, people really get Fucked up in Braveheart. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It is but a scratch. It's not that, but it, it's it's got kind of almost that... Star Wars-y flourish to it, which, uh, you know, later on, the way that um, Obi-Wan fought uh, in the prequels, even. Just, just the way that Ewan McGregor was, like, spinning his lightsaber around and actually was really excited to be fighting like that.
2: Yeah. One of the yeah. um, lines in one of my favourite fantasy books is that how medieval-style battles tend to work is that you beat your opponent to death with the flat of your blade. Yeah. This is definitely not that.
0: No, it's all showy. It's all, yeah. like, a stage combat, but just, uh, you know, much faster and, and flashier. Mm-hmm. But, um uh, it, 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 yeah. it, it grabbed me when i was a kid i was like yeah swords
5: same it looks it, it looks great it looks almost like rapier fighting but mm. with much larger swords yes i still appreciate
6: the the emotion that they pack into that because for all that you only really meet eric like three or four times before you're invested in his death um he and he and kilmer do have a really good chemistry playing off of each mm-hmm. other as very antagonistic but familiar and then kind of like patching up old wounds mm-hmm. like this was you know I, I i first saw this when i was like four years old because it came out in 88 and i only saw it a little bit after that but like this is one of those movies where like you realize oh wait the good guys can die too because that's such like a big moment and you know it's it's really brutal and then mad Morgan really you know it's it's dumb and it's like silly but you know taking that sword and you know win this war for me that that works dramatically it just you know how how the fuck were you going to use that, dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, an upstairs uh, sorcerer manages to get into the uh, uh, the blood magic chamber and faces down her mother. Who who? The, the, again, there was this uh, cut speech where she's like, "I've I've met my father, you know. Or I've seen my father. He wasn't weak. You you you." turned him to stone, you're a terrible person. But again, it, it's more just, like, you're a cruel person, and I have to oppose your cruelty. So this is her self actualizing and deciding, you know, I'm actually going to stand up to, effectively, what's been this sort of terrifying bully her whole life. Which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a moment.
2: And this is one of the reasons why I actually really appreciated them taking out that subplot with mm. the father, because it's it's very easy to have... Um, a a female character's arc essentially distilled down to daddy issues. And for it to be so fundamentally based on her relationship with her mother and not have anything interfere with that Mm. made it more uh, pure for me, a little bit more Mm. powerful than it would have been
0: otherwise. And then, uh, like, uh, Sorcerer uh, fights a bunch of uh, uh, cultists and gets knocked down by uh, Bab Morda herself. Uh, but uh, Finn Razelle steps up to the plate with this gorgeous twisty wand. And uh, uh, what we then get is one of cinema's only spectacular witch fights.
2: And it is oh, yes. spectacular. You yeah.
0: just don't get enough of them. Yeah,
2: and this is—you yeah. can see the seeds in this for the battle between Saruman and Gandalf, Gandalf. in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lord definitely. of the Rings, definitely, and also Voldemort versus uh, Dumbledore, Dumbledore in, in Order of the Absolutely. Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the in the kind of they use different elemental powers against each other, yeah. and just the fact that this is two old ladies beating the shit out of yeah. each other—it ends it up just so like cool.
0: clawing at each other on the floor. It's yeah. really physical by the end.
2: It really is. Yeah.
0: yeah, and like they both play pos like one of them, like uh, Finrazel gets trapped and then has to Akio wand, uh, and um, then and Bahamorda like gets thrown down after being tossed around the room like a rag doll. And then just yeah. plays possum, and she sort of lies and lies and lies. And then Finn Rizzo sort of approaches and sort of pokes at her. And Bavmorda wakes up in the most horrifying way possible. She just goes... <laughs> uh-huh. Shit, your pattern's scary. Mm. And bear, bear I, I in mind, she's Finn dressed Rizzo. as a mummy. <laughs> yeah. And I love watching Finn Rizal get really into it. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And
0: I, like, I've been a muskrat for
2: seventy years. <laughs> There's a little um, sort of dialogue between them at the beginning as well, and I can't remember exactly what they say to each other. But it did make me think they know each other, like <clears throat> the two of them and Shilindria, even if it's just by reputation. <clears throat> this is a world where these powerful magic users know who each other are.
7: Yeah, oh, that whole bitch. yeah. Bab Morda even says like your your power has grown mm. over the over the decades. So she clearly has this yeah. reputation, which again is a little bit like oh Obi Wan, your power's... is oh I've yeah. grown so much yeah. stronger since I was your apprentice and now I'm the master. Now it has kind of that feel to it as well.
3: Razel
0: Razel it's a real so, like yeah. dripping vicious way of saying it, yeah. Did Bad
3: Morda... I guess I assume Beth Morda was the one that turned her into a muskrat.
0: Almost when, certainly. Yeah, she did. Oh, okay. She,
5: yeah, right. Bav, Morda's, Bav Morda's magic uh, changed me or something along that. She says that when Willow first gets the island. Nice. Okay, good,
3: yeah. Yeah, so it's... it's yeah. They've been, definitely been a lot worse. Had, They definitely had some kind of interaction, at least one, mm.
5: before. Yeah. I but, have Shalindria's one, one, Bav <laughs>
0: Such a great uh, <laughs> Patricia Hayes, yeah. just so
5: fantastic oh, yeah. and scene. She went I mean, in 1998,
0: them- and that's uh, like uh, once mm. you see uh, uh, an old woman being like a sorceress, you're like, well, she's gonna, she's got to live forever now. <sighs> she's got the old lady thing going on, but uh, yeah. yeah, no. As, as a as a, a kid, I, you know, I, I think again, like. The, the female energy must have, uh, and the respect for it in this film, must have had some effect on me because I've never, ever felt that this is unbalanced, these women are too powerful.
2: Your powers have gained in strength for I have Shandindria's wand,
1: fat border. Enora will be queen.
0: Just never occurred to me.
7: And it would have been so easy to have mad martigan just like bust through when everything looked like it was about to be lost and have him like swing in and save the day but that never happens he doesn't come in until after it's pretty much all done he plays the support role and helps willow and everybody else get to their goal by taking care of all of the battle business outside
0: he's a a, he's a dedicated warrior now and his opposite is the other dedicated warrior Mm. Huh? Willow's opposite it would appear like Willow like sh- Bathmordor has taken out her greatest opponent and Willow is a nothing and nobody. He's got like nothing going on and he uses that as we've already said to uh, to his advantage. He uses her ov- underestimation of him that he couldn't possibly accomplish anything. Uh so I think the Acorn, while it fails, does make her feel like, well, this he uses some kind of magic. Mm. He was working with Finn Rizal. I don't know this thing. It's the same as Sauron not knowing what a hobbit is, so yeah. they can use this it, the, to their advantage. The
2: acorns, which were give to, given to him by the High win they are folk magic, right? Yeah. No. They're an extension of, of what he uses next, which is illusion, which she wouldn't understand in the slightest mm. because doing fake magic would be meaningless to her. I love the line where he says, I'm going to send Elora uh, to a, a realm where evil cannot touch her. And Bad Morda's instantly were like, there's, there's no, no such, such
0: place. place. <laughs> evil can get <laughs>
2: everywhere.
5: <laughs> One thing that I also really like about that scene is the dismissive with dismissiveness with which Bad Morda responds to Willow. Mm. Like, he's got Allura Dannon and she's just like, put her back on the altar and walks away like she expects him to actually do this. Yeah. Like, she, should, she just commands him to do this and just expects that he is, in fact, going to take the baby that he has almost died several times to protect. Mm. Just put her back on the altar and, what, like, walk out? Yeah. What was your plan, Bav Morda? <laughs> what did you think was going to happen here?
2: But that is so consistent with what she's surrounded herself with so far, which is Kale, who does everything she tells him to, mm. Sorcia, who up until recently did everything she told her to, and those sycophantic... Priests who
0: do oh will kill a baby next to
2: nothing. No she problem. Doesn't command them to do. I think she says at something at one point. Uh, one of them says that he thinks your daughter will betray, will betray you. Will betray
0: them. I trust her loyalty more than I trust yours. That's
2: it. But the the point she's making there is I trust your loyalty completely, and hers is even stronger.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, uh yeah, like we said, Power three with the acorns, and then he uses the disappearing pig trick he did at the uh, beginning and fakes her out with the pain, which causes her to bungle into uh, in, in just in amazement uh, the uh, uh, blood that she 'd set up on the altar, which banishes her soul to the nether realm it's a neat little ending and then pretty much the rest of the film is non-verbal like she die like she is rent into blood and then uh, removed from uh, uh, the, the land and then uh, it cuts to sort of the end of the well, the, the next day, and everything's lovely in the uh, castle. Or well, not the next day. That, it cuts to a morning at that castle, and is it uh, Lean now? They've moved away from yes. that Mars uh, castle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, that's Tirasleen. Yeah, everyone who was previously stoned has been restored, including this king. And uh, it, you know, Willow just gets given a spell book. Like, you know, it's, it's again, like, Willow is effectively your stand-in for all the kids in the audience. So, like, you know, do you want to be a wizard? And, and uh, like, here is a bunch of spells. And this, it sets, it allows him to go back to his village as a father, as a farmer, but with an increased, like, with many, many points added to his sorcerer class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
5: Just just as a, a thing, I love Mad Mardigan's outfits in hmm. that scene uh, with the pains on the shoulders and the... Uh, it's little, really good. Yeah, that that is a great costume. Yeah. I, I wish I wish there was more of that costume in that movie. I don't know where
0: you put it, but... It's quite Shakespearean, I like it, yeah. It is, yeah.
7: Yeah, it is.
0: Before people uh, uh, message us about it, we know about the Chris Claremont uh, three book series that was uh, written between uh, 1995 mm-hmm. and 2000, uh, where he took the premise of Willow, who renames himself Thorn Drumheller. So Claremont takes everything we know about Willow, including his name, and destroyed it within one chapter, destroyed everyone we love and and care about, and then wrote three books worth of grim, dark misery uh, in uh, what may as well have been a completely different place and may as well have been a completely different book series about uh, a halfling named Thorn Drumheller who is uh, really miserable and sad and morose and everyone he knows is dead. Brilliant! Thanks for that, writer, like creator of some of the greatest X-Men ever of all time. I I don't get that. Apparently, it was George Lucas's plan. It's like, really, your plan was to kill everyone, including the whole Nelwyn village? That—that was the plan?
4: Everyone I know is dead.
0: Uh, have you got any more mac and cheese? Yes, we do. And it, like, actually, it's, it's George Lucas, so maybe. Yeah, maybe. But either way, it's like, yeah. none of it. Like if you read the reviews, they are furious. They're from all avowed Willow fans. This is the worst idea ever. Why would you do this? It's like doing. Do you remember that um, uh, Grimdark Power Rangers parody trailer? From the director yeah, of Tour. Yeah. Like it's it's like doing that and and marketing it as the continuation of Power Rangers for Power Rangers fans. Now some you're gonna be getting, yeah, this is the Power Rangers I always wanted. Rape! But a lot of other Power Rangers are gonna go, I bought this for Power Rangers, not for this, not like this. <laughs> so, yeah, it's difficult to get hold of the books now, and I don't uh, suggest you, you do. They have nothing to do with Willow, and I'm baffled that they exist. <laughs> There we go. There, yeah. That
5: bombshell.
0: And it's not canon. There has been talk for many, many years of a Willow 2 or a Willow TV series. I hope that that eventually does come to fruition. But I don't mind if it doesn't because this was such a fundamental part of my childhood. Willow goes home, goes to the village. No words required. He just returns with the elixir, which is he had to believe in himself. And it's it's a sweet, self-contained little story. And it just thrilled me.
6: And it plays very well universally as well. Um, hmm. Like we've been doing movie nights with Marion, and and she actually watched this with me this morning. Nice. And it was a, it was adorable how like into it she was getting because she loves magic and monsters and dragons anyway. And so whenever whenever Kale was taking a Laura Dan, and she was saying, "You stop taking that baby, bad guys," or <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was ridiculous. She's she's two and a half. Okay, and, so um, that's
0: an that's an acceptable age, folks. If you've uh, uh if you've oh like no. if they're accustomed to monsters and things, two and a half is fun. I would say it was. Well,
6: it, I mean, you know, maybe we we accidentally showed her Stranger Things like a little bit this summer. Okay, maybe uh, because, not bad. <laughs> that's because she was just super into the monsters and was like wandering into the room with us, but. But no, she was she was into this. She was even, whenever the, the dragon was, like, eating the troll, she was like, ob nob nob nom, nom, nom,
0: nom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that dragon effect is it's this lovely little tribute to Ray Harryhausen. It looks, it's like, I don't know if it actually is yeah. stop motion, but it's got that kind of a knock-my-soldiers, like, poking at it with spears yes. going yeah, on. Yeah, it's... It's sort of the the Phil
6: Tippett 1980s evolution of stop motion because it yeah. uses a lot more like motion blur and stuff. But it's yeah. it's the same principle. But it, I don't know. I think that kind of holds up even as close as they get that to the camera. That's a pretty good-looking creature. Yeah,
2: Some of the compositing in this dead. is really, really good. Yeah. Like Some of the stuff with the brownies, uh, largely because they used – no pun intended. Uh, they used a lot of oversized sets mm. and, and things to make it – Much more convincing. They they come close to doing like forced perspective stuff on occasion. Uh, Did have
3: you shown it to Lyra?
0: Oh God, yeah, we showed it to Lyra about a decade (laughs) ago. Like she might even have been a bit younger than Marion. Oh okay, okay.
3: So she loves. She also loves.
7: Oh yeah,
0: yeah. She loves it. She
7: watched it with us again today.
0: Absolutely, it's nice.
7: It's kind of a feel-good romp, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. Like you, like you said before, it's a very self-contained story. It's it's very sweet. It's got a adorable ending, and mm. uh, you can appreciate it for just being a, a fun romp through this sort of different fantasy realm.
0: Sharon, you on that note, it might have been that it was too sweet for audiences in 1988 who were starting to want something a bit more savvy. Even so, even though it's got Magmadigan kind of cracking wise, mm. it was a bit too optimistic Sharon ah, you had a yeah. theory. Wow. Well they,
2: this ties in with what i was saying earlier about the sincerity of the of willow when it's up against the uh, the sarcasm of some of the other characters. Uh, but there is a little bit of a feel of i think they call it the new sincerity movement hmm. the millennial optimism in the face of things being pretty shit going up against the apathy and cynicism of Slightly older Gen X's, mm. and when this came out, the those millennials who would come to kind of front that movement were very little and not really old enough, maybe, to go and see it at the theatres
0: mm. or maybe grew not up born watching yet. it on yeah. VHS. Yeah. yeah, yeah, this is a home movie. And as way.
2: I think Brendan pointed out, it did do much better on the, um, the home market, uh, VHS and and um. Uh, television it
0: was very popular when it it had to compete in the cinema against Crocodile Dundee 2
2: well who could
0: yeah I mean 12% on Rotten Tomatoes Crocodile Dundee 2 just
5: saying Jesus Christ
0: I mean the average kid these days would be like what was Crocodile Dundee 1 but uh, yeah no it was a thing for some reason there was a brief uh, uh, interest in Australia which I feel like would have been better just as a sustained let's look into making an Australian film industry rather than just making it these two films. And don't forget Young Einstein. Oh, everybody did.
1: Now, Australia's colossal comedy hit starring its newest comedy hero comes to
4: the States. Just let me hear some
1: Yahoo! Sirius is Young Einstein. I'm a Tasmanian. Albert discovers that there are even worse things in the big city than a cat pie. Warner Brothers proudly presents Yahoo! Sirius as Young Einstein. One seriously funny
0: movie. But anyway, we'll talk about Crocodile Dundee at some other point. It's really homophobic. (laughs) Like, really homophobic. Yeah.
4: (sighs) Yeah.
0: We are so sorry, Australia. You deserve better. Especially now. Shout out to our favourite Australian podcast, The Two Shrinks Pod. We will get them back on at some point where we will not be talking about Young Einstein or the Crocodile Dundee films. In fact, at the moment on the slate, we have Rain Man. E.T. The Extraterrestrial will continue our Spielberg season. We'll be getting Chris Chipman of Tangent Brothers Podcast back for that one because our Jaws show is making a lot of people happy. At the time of editing this, we are just about to start recording our Gravity Falls season. That's going to be four weeks talking about the TV show Gravity Falls, which can be found on Disney+. Plus. It is a spectacularly good show. Track it down and watch as much of it as you can before April when our shows begin. But if you don't have access to Disney+, Plus or the DVDs, we will be holding spoilers back until we get to those episodes. So you can start listening just to get a feel for it and nothing major will be spoiled. Once again, a massive thank you to our $15 patrons. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman... Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, James Enright, Mark Lux, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluze, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And next week we remain in the 80s with those teenage vampires, the Lost Boys.
4: Crystal. Lord and Miller for Willow
0: 2. Oh! oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Suddenly it's all okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if there yeah. is going to be a Willow show, it'll be on Disney Plus because effectively they own it. Mm. So, yeah, it's Lucasfilm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, well, well, we will see. And uh, I think that will about do it for Willow for now. Ladies and gentlemen, please pimp your various recent projects, especially focusing on episodes that you're proud of. And we will start with. Brendan. Yes, you can
6: find me on normannerd.blogspot.com where I write reviews. Um, specifically, I just threw one up there of Terminator: Dark Fate, which I'm hoping people check out. Um, we also do a, you'd uh, like a, a weekly video column over at Synapse. That's cinaps C-O. And uh, there was a whole bunch of Halloween-related stuff there. So if you're feeling sad about the uh, spooker season being over, then head on over there and. Read stuff about The Gate or Mandy or just a whole bunch of like fun horror movies we were tearing through. And uh you can also follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew where I occasionally post Marion's reactions to movies and stuff.
0: And Caro and Debbie.
5: Um let's see here, you can find us at sequentially-yours.com where we talk comic books and comic book movies. Um, and that sort of stuff. Uh, one of my favorite videos I did was called Three Close Readings, where I just took some comics and some random, uh, some some random music, or not music theory, uh, literary theory schools and read the comics from them. Um, also recently I've been writing for Something Ghoulish, which is a horror, uh, um, a horror exploratory, um, thing. Uh, our most recent one on the socioeconomic context of the Adams Family. Oh, I think it's nice. fascinating. And you can find me at MoonPanther22 on Twitter.
3: And I'm also on dot com and most active on Twitter at either Debbie Morse or best at 8300. Uh, I love to engage with people and always open for pet photos. Especially cats. <laughs> I love me some cat nah. Twitter.
0: And finally, Maya.
7: So you can find me on Twitter at Maya SantAndrea. and I don't know if any of you guys have started, if you have HBO, if you've started watching The Do- Watchmen. Series, uh-huh. but I was in the pilot episode of that series. It was in one of the big police shootout scenes, and Shit, they now even, I gotta watch
5: it. <laughs> and
7: they even and they even credited all of us, which was shocking.
5: Uh, wow! wow. Never,
7: they never credit stunt people for television, but HBO actually is crediting all of the the actual the coordinators and the stunt players in uh, at least the the couple of episodes that I've seen, and I believe episode three drops tonight so i'm i'm in a few later episodes in the series but i believe uh, uh you know later tonight you'll be able to watch the first three episodes it's on a good start i'm really optimistic about it it's it's got some really cool production design the story seems pretty solid it's got some very relevant political content in it and It's off to a good start, so I've got high hopes. And so if you if you have access to HBO or HBO Go, HBO Now, start watching The Watchmen. It's looking pretty good.
0: Unfortunately, awesome. it is upsetting people who hate hearing anything to do with politics uh, in their TV programming. So definitely watch it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really absolutely. have to watch it, <laughs>
7: right? Because because the source material had nothing to do with politics. Yeah, no, so
0: keep totally politics out of our Watchmen. Of yeah. Okay.
5: okay. No, no politics there at all. <laughs> Alan Moore, Gibbons. Famously apolitical. Yep, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Okay, and that is all from us this week. We will be back with more awesomely outrageous 80s next week with The Lost Boys.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: All the damn vampires. Many thanks again to Joel Robinson who commissioned this episode. You made it happen, Joel, at long last. Thank you. And we will close out on some more of the amazing music of the sadly departed... James Horner. This is entitled Willow's Theme. I think it should be retitled Willow, Mad Martigan and Alora Dannon. I've been Alex Shaw
2: I've been Sharon Shaw
0: and School's Out As a weird, like, retro con. retro. Mm. as a weird retro. what's the word? As a weird retro consonant. there. Considence? Confidence? <laughs> con. My stupid brain! Consequence.
3: Consequence.
0: As a weird ah. retro consequence.
3: keep up with those horses.
0: Then we
5: will have to track them. That
3: would take forever. Besides, even if we find them, they'll catch us, stick us in cages, torture us, and finally devour us.
5: Are you suggesting
2: we go home?
4: Nah. This is more fun.